Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today's episode is a cross-post of some interviews I recently did on two other shows, uh, Mission Daily and The Good Life. I expect that, as usual with these cross-posted episodes, some of the content will be familiar to regular listeners. But if you're at all interested in my personal thoughts and uh, life, then there should be quite a lot of new material to make listening worthwhile. The first interview was with uh, Chad Grills, and it was released as part of a series of episodes about effective altruism, including an episode with former 80,000 Hours podcast guest, uh, Will McCaskill. Uh, If you like the interview with me, you might well want to subscribe to Mission Daily so you can look through the other effective altruism-themed episodes and uh, choose a few to listen to. We largely focused on new technologies and existential risks, but we did also have some time to discuss pretty random topics like the merits of cooperation and transparency uh, between different groups, the evolution of egalitarianism uh, in in hunter-gatherer tribes, and how we might be able to make uh, politics better uh, in an age of social media. The second interview is with Andrew Lee, who is the Shadow Assistant Treasurer um, in Australia. Uh, Andrew focuses his podcast on advice for living a happy, healthy, and ethical life and uh, tries to steer clear of politics to some extent. And so this one gets into more personal topics than I would usually talk about on this show, certainly. Things like uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self and um, which person or experience has uh, most shaped your ideas of uh, living an ethical life. Speaking of Australia, for Australian listeners or anyone interested in traveling to Australia later this year, I wanted to let you know that the Effective Altruism Global X Australia Conference uh, will be on on the 28th and 29th of September at the University of Sydney Business School. Uh, You can find out more about that and uh, sign up to go at eagxaustralia.com. All right, here's chat. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, uh, it's it's a pleasure to be on. So you're based in the Bay Area? Yeah, we're actually, well, I'm, I'm currently uh, living in Berkeley, uh, but we're in the process of all moving to London. I'm the last person off the ship to, to, to get out of uh, California and move back to the UK. Very cool. What's the reason for the shift, if you don't uh, mind sharing? Well, uh, so we have five British staff members, three Australians and one American. So I think we just had a lot more um, you know, family, friends living there. So we came here for a while and then decided, I guess, that would, would for the long term, would rather settle down where, where we know a lot of people. Which is a great idea, right? You know, you come out to the Bay Area to get things started, to get to know people out here and then go back to the hometown to grow things. Yeah, we originally came out uh, for a couple of months for Y Combinator back in 2015. And I guess now, yeah, we've come out for another two years. And I think we've met a lot of really uh, smart people, uh, made, made a lot of connections, and uh, we're definitely going to stay in touch with them. We'll be back here, back here all the time. I love it. What's your thought process behind Y Combinator? Because I know at the time, I think that was one of the first nonprofits that was admitted, right? Yeah, I think it was the second second uh, round okay. of it. Uh, so you're asking why, why we applied? Why did you apply? What was your thought process there? And then uh, what was the experience like? Well, Y Combinator just seems to be cutting edge in terms of giving giving advice on how you can grow a project. At that time, we were only three staff members. So it's a very early days. Uh, we didn't really know what the product should be. We had like some evidence that what we were doing was kind of working or that there was a model that, that could be built here for changing people's careers and improving them. But we didn't know a whole lot about management. We didn't know so much about how do you build a startup, how do you hire, all that kind of thing. It seemed just potentially incredibly useful to go through and gain all that wisdom that they've had from supporting hundreds of companies over the years, now thousands. The experience of going through it, I think it was very useful in terms of improving our internal systems, figuring out like what metrics do we want to track, what processes should we have like over a week or over a month uh, for sure. you know, structuring the work. To, so uh, for example, we have like bout structures now. So we go between like one month to three months of like work where we have 
uh, each team has particular goals that they're trying to hit by the end of that bout. And then you take a break and then you like start another bout. So it has like more of a cyclical structure. Oh, every like week, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, every week we have like meetings with the whole team where we look at our metrics, uh, like see, you know, are we on track to hit our goals? Uh, that kind of thing we, we, we weren't doing before. And when you first got into Y Combinator, I know you're the second nonprofit there. So um, I'm curious if you can share any. Was there a bit of hostility between the nonprofits and for-profit startups? Was there because it's an open question if they're going to continue the program for nonprofits at that point. So that that's a bit, you're, you're taking a bit of a risk on your part, right? Yeah, potentially. I mean, I think for us, it would have been useful even if they closed, closed the program sure. down immediately afterwards. Certainly don't recall any hostility between the nonprofit founders and the and the for-profit founders. I think there was a range of views uh, on the Y Combinator team about uh, like how useful the nonprofit program was. It's kind of, uh, people have different ideologies about, you know, how many problems can be solved by businesses and like, is there room sure. for, for nonprofits to really fill in much of a gap there? I think there obviously is. For, for some things, it's very hard to Definitely. build a business model to solve a problem. And I think most of the most of the partners at Y Combinator thought that, but 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 not all of them. Some some of them were a bit skeptical. And and there is this issue that Y Combinator is very focused on building organizations very quickly, like making them hit a really large scale. It's much harder for nonprofits in general to do that because they don't have a very good revenue model where like right. people benefiting from the thing causes more money to come in and allows them to grow. So that's one problem. Plus two, you're talking about a scenario with nonprofits where you might get just the completely, completely wrong type of people to join too. If you're, if it's, you're too focused on growth, on money, because I know for startups that it's not something people like to discuss a lot. It's the Silicon Valley ethos is like, oh, growth solves all problems, but growth can turn into cancer as, as well. Like there's a right size for organizations to accomplish their goals. So I definitely agree with that. And, and that's a, a potentially a bigger problem for nonprofits because it's much harder to know when you're accomplishing a goal, I think, as a nonprofit. Because right. as, as a for-profit, if you're selling uh, to customers, if you have revenue growth, that's a very good sign. For nonprofits, it's much harder to say what metric actually you should be tracking. Like what is it that corresponds with, with completing your goal? Which is fascinating because, yeah, so what metrics are you tracking? Can you share any? Yeah, so so the bottom line is impact-adjusted significant plan changes, which is a piece okay. of jargon which corresponds to we basically keep a record of everyone whose career we think we've improved, and we try to figure out you know how how much difference do we make, like what would they have done otherwise, and you know how valuable is, is the contribution on the on the margin. So how much more social impact do we think they'll have with what they're doing now relative to what they they were going to have before, which is obviously very hard to measure. Uh, there's a lot of guessing that goes into that, but I think it's much better than just kind of guessing each week about how much impact we've had. Like actually being able Definitely. to say, well, we think this person uh, is like really going to go do something useful now because of something something that we said to them. And obviously, the model is going to keep improving over time too, which is you got to start somewhere and start measuring it. Yeah. Um, Exactly. Um, could you share any specific examples maybe of uh, people or whether they're anonymous or folks who came to you, didn't really know too much about what you were up to, and then completely shifted careers in a different direction? Yeah, it's interesting. I think by and large, the specific stories are, are fairly sensitive. Uh, so we, tr we try to keep sure. a hold on to that data because I want to share because people, we, we like often know like, you know, their most innermost thoughts about their career. They have to be willing to share that with us. Because we've had many cases where I think people were just planning to go into maybe just start a business in general or just go into consulting, do some professional career. And now are interested in perhaps working more on policy, more on kind of security, more on like civilizational stability. I think that's one of the biggest shifts you get is people thinking, and moving from thinking, well, I just want to like have a normal career. I just want to like make some money or like yeah, build a business, just like have any professional job that, that has esteem towards thinking, I really want to steer the, the future of civilization and make sure that things go really well. So they're thinking like we promote this idea of uh, long term value about potentially the, the highest leverage opportunities to improve the world are things that will change how well uh, the future of humanity goes over hundreds or thousands or possibly even millions of years. And that's not something that's on most people's radar uh, when they're thinking about their career. <laughs> And it's something that sounds very intimidating at first because you can fall into the trap of thinking, how am I ever going to do that? How am I going to find the right people? How am I going to get at a place where my skills actually contribute to an, an organization's mission and impact something 200 years in the future? That can feel daunting at first. However, when you start 
basically considering the scope of the opportunities out there, you can start to identify some some obvious choices. So let's take the uh, for-profit ones. Like if you're passionate about preventing a catastrophe, like go to SpaceX, go to Palantir. If you want to stop conflicts in the future from being kinetic, you can go to Palantir and preempt them before they start. Those are a couple examples, but what are your favorite examples? Just to back up a little bit. So if, if you think that what, because like, there's potentially so ma- so many people, so much potential value that could be generated over the very long term, then you want to think, uh, what things could we plausibly do now that would affect things for a very long time? Because most things that you do, if, if you don't do them now, they'll be done later anyway. Right. So you have to find some opportunity that is not going to be, that like that people in the future can't just do once we you know, have a larger economy, have more wisdom. So there's a couple of different things. The one that most people have gravitated to, at least so far, is worrying about the possibility of human extinction or civilizational collapse. So if humanity goes extinct because of some terrible mistake that we make now, it's very clear that future generations won't be able to fix that problem because they won't be around. That's like a unique opportunity that we have today that future generations won't have is to fix these like the risks of like civilizational collapse. Sure. Now, there's a bunch of different risks there. Uh, one would be like nuclear war, which is well known. That's like, I think there's an underestimated, or people underestimate the risk of a nuclear war between uh, the US and Russia or U- uh, US and China, though I think it's not super high. So it's with other risks. There's a risk of a huge pandemic. We have already had like pandemics that have killed several percent of people. And there's no reason in principle why you couldn't have one that could kill, you know, 10 to 90 percent of people if we got extremely unlucky. And of course, there's more people around now. So there's more diseases, diseases out there that are constantly mutating and right. have the potential to get a lot worse. We also have synthetic biology, which creates like new possibilities for kind of accidental creation of diseases that are much worse than the one nature would typically throw up. So that's, that's the second one. I guess a third one that people talk about a lot is artificial intelligence. Think about like what new technologies could, could appear in the future that could change how, just change everything in a really big way and potentially upend them in a negative direction. There's a bunch of ways that people are concerned that, you know, artificial intelligence could lead to wars or could just result in kind of humans being cut out of the decision loop because right. artificial intelligence ends up making most of the choices. And if it doesn't share our values, then then that could go quite badly. Uh, then I'd say or before, if it falls into the hands of like wrong person or group, it's going to yeah. impact every other example you just mentioned there in a it could accelerate those threats, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe a fourth one I'll quickly mention is like risk of totalitarianism or kind of a political collapse where you get stuck in a stuck in a political situation uh, that's very bad that you can't get out of. Possibilities there are technologies that could allow you to change people's opinions too easily. So you just don't have the kind of dynamic political system that we have today. Or potentially you could genetically engineer humans so that they're very pliable and like not inclined to rebel. So you, again, just get, like, get stuck in a local maximum and can never get out of that. Slightly far-fetched, but like, uh, conceivable with technology that might appear in the next few hundred years. And some people would argue it's already been going on to a certain extent, or it's always going on. Like whether you think about like Ian Banks culture series, like where, where he says that they're basically living under uh, gerontocracy, like that's a risk that any society falls under, right? Is where the old are way too aggressive on the young. Yeah, I guess I guess we see that to, to some extent now. It would have to get a lot so, worse for to some, ex- to to some be, extent. To some extent, yeah, risk, but. you know, being uh, in the U.S. where it's like first world problems galore, like you can't really make too hard of a case for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's uh, it's definitely happening to a certain extent. Um, and I think that culture is one of the biggest risks here, where it's uh, something that's invisible, it's amorphous, it's hard to pin down what it is, but it impacts daily decisions and behavior. So. Yeah. So, so then the fifth one I'll quickly mention is a great power war, uh, which is kind of like having World War II, but again, with modern technology, probably wouldn't lead directly to extinction, but it could like throw civilization so off track that we like nev- we don't really have the capability to recover from that. And then the sixth one would just be uh, like something else that we haven't thought of yet. And there's probably like a pretty broad category of like risks to society that we haven't, haven't really uh, figured out and that, that we should be going out and trying to identify and diffuse. And with the risk of World War III, this is something I'm uh, super paranoid about because uh, Americans love a good trilogy and uh, it's uh, a big problem. And I think war is something that the general populace now doesn't participate in or have any type of experience with 
But the second you go overseas or if you talk to people in other countries, you're going to meet many more people who are familiar with war, with violence mm -hmm. and just how terrible it is. How are you thinking about and how are the people you're working with thinking about stopping uh, large scale conflict? Uh, so that's one. We currently have nine staff. So as an organization that's still fairly young, we've had to specialize a little bit. Uh, so the ones that we're more focused on at the moment, are, we're, we're particularly focused on artificial intelligence as kind of our first foray into this. Sure. We know a decent amount about the, the biotechnology and pandemic risks. And then we're going to try to expand into these other categories over time as we can build expertise. Gotcha. There's kind of this risk if we try to tackle all of them at once, then we'll do a bad job of like six different risks. Hey, rather than like a, a good job of one. Yeah. yeah. So what's, uh, what research are you following or what's uh, on your radar right now? Uh, so I have this podcast, the 80,000 Hours podcast. Um, Which is awesome. Go check it out. Oh, yeah. Uh, thanks so much. So we do like very long form interviews. I think late, lately the typical episode length is about three hours. So oh, wow. I really love to. Oh, and you've done a bunch of research about this, too, that shows longer episodes are might be better for you. Yeah, this yeah. is an uh, yeah, just as an aside. So uh, Apple Podcasts recently Sorry started. Sorry to interrupt, but I just oh, got, no, it's fine. It. We'll come back to it. Yeah, so Apple Podcasts recently started giving uh, people uh, information on like how much of the episodes people listening to, right. which was previously just kind of a mystery. And, and I was able to see we have episodes all the way from one hour long to four hours long. And I could see as the episode becomes longer, how do people drop off and like listen to a tiny and tiny fraction of it? And they do, but only slightly. So I think like the episode length that would maximize the amount of time that people spend listening to it is about eight hours. Uh, and so <laughs> I, I've made I've tried to make this argument to other people doing interviews that they should make them longer because like once you pay the fixed cost of getting someone in the studio and like looking up their work and getting to understand it, why not talk for two hours rather than one? Because people are almost going to listen to as much of the second hour as the first. So you get to go into like other things that they haven't said before. This is so important. So we kind of stumbled on this, I would say a month and a half ago when we were interviewing different executives of large companies, whether they're CEOs or CMOs or CIOs or CTOs of publicly traded companies, if they would agree to do an interview, in which case many of them did, they would come to the studio and we would do an hour. There would be so much left to talk about. There would be a huge amount of things to talk about. So our thought process was, why don't we just expand this? And the question is though, how much can we expand it? Because you know, if somebody's budgeting an entire afternoon to do something, you might as well go all in and create yeah. the, like, the shining city on the hill piece of content type thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think you, you might worry that people would be less willing to come on if they mm -hmm. have to dedicate so much time to it. But I think they're actually more willing to because it means that they're not just doing an interview where they're saying the same thing that they've said before many right. times. Uh, and also it means that they're creating this like archive of their views at that time in like great depth that sure. they can then point people to. It's like, this is the one thing to, to listen to from me that explains my, my opinions. Because how much of an executive's time, whether you're at a nonprofit or a for-profit, is spent explaining or re-explaining the same things over and over, which exactly. is a lot of the job. Yeah, so. something you just want to create kind of an exemplar and then yes. everyone reads that just the one best article. It's hey, like, we talked about it here. Efficient. And yeah. then, uh, you know, over time, you might need to redo that episode or essentially like re-release that book or whatever you were talking about. But it's much, much easier than trying to uh, explain everything to everyone. Exactly. It's <laughs> yeah. impossible. Do, do an episode like that every couple of years once you've got a, yeah, uh, got a whole set of new opinions. So yeah, if you're interested in that, 80,000 Hours podcast, search for that now. You can subscribe. Uh, help me hit my metrics. Um, <laughs> uh, but so let's maybe we can go back to the AI thing. Sure. So yeah, there's kind of two broad categories of work that people are engaging in to try to make sure that if artificial intelligence does significantly improve over the next couple of decades, potentially like approach you know human levels of reasoning or or, or better, that it goes well. It's kind of the technical side where people who are actually working on machine learning trying to figure out how do we design machine learning systems that remain aligned with human interests and human goals, even as they become like much more creative and much more intelligent about how they're accomplishing things and kind of think for themselves to a greater degree. We want artificial intelligence to potentially be be creative in trying to solve problems, to see things that we weren't that we weren't going to think of. But we don't want it to kind of diverge from the original like intentions mm. that we had. We don't want it to create outcomes that we didn't foresee, that we didn't imagine it might think were 
consistent with what we've said. There is this general problem that you like we, we constantly are telling computers to do things, but then it's like kind of not quite what we intended. And you see this with machine learning systems all the time that we say, you know, try to get a high score and then they find some kind of cheat that you didn't imagine that, that allows them to get the high score in this game. Yeah, well, we're using code and language in a sense to interact with these machines, which these symbols are very imperfect because they exactly. don't show the machines what we mean. We can't transmit context or the machine has no reference point for emotions or biology in a sense. Like it's not even close to being a biological thing. So how can we start to show these machines what we our intentions are, if that makes any sense? Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know ML. So yeah, other people on the show to talk about this more. I guess one thing is you want it to constant, at least initially, you want it to be referring back to kind of human judgment uh, all the time. So, so past examples, uh, similar right. scenarios. So that, that's an obvious approach you could try to take is that it tries to like build its own model of what you want by constantly asking you questions. I mean, you're like, is this what you wanted? And then it goes back and then comes up, is this what you wanted? Sure. Uh, a challenge there is that that potentially slows down the learning process a lot because it can like run tons of simulations inside itself, but then humans don't have the time to be giving feedback uh, in that much level of depth. So from a technical point of view, uh, I know OpenAI and DeepMind and other groups have been trying to figure out how do you get, uh, I guess, like machine learning systems to pull out as much information as they can from the feedback that they're getting from humans so that they can actually build an accurate model of like what's the underlying intent there. They've made some progress, but it's like there's still a lot of work to be done because, uh, for example, when the circumstance changes, then kind of the, the, the feedback that people have given in the past isn't potentially going to generalize to the new situation. Sure. And that's a real issue that they face is like currently ML systems don't really have a good process for evaluating when they're out of the depth, when the situation has changed enough that like they can't rely on the data that they've had before. That's just kind of not something that's been built into it. So that's like another thing that has to be figured out. You also want machine learning systems to know when they should stop. I guess in particular, we want them to know that if, even if we've given them some particular goal, if we kind of want them to stop, or if we like feel that we've, we've misspecified the goal, they shouldn't continue pursuing it. Right. That also turns out to be like quite hard to program in because it's like you've given it this particular goal. It's just going to keep trying to going for that, right? And uh, as of the situation right now, compute resources are finite. So you can't give it the problem of solving entropy in the universe because it's going to exhaust yeah. all resources yeah on earth so, exactly yeah, yeah. So, so this is called corrigibility the capacity for something to stop itself from like accomplishing the goal that's been specified at the right time gotcha. um, so there's like all, all these kind of technical problems there's a great paper that people could read if they're interested in learning a little bit more about this it's pretty easy i think for a layperson to understand called uh, concrete problems in ai safety which describes a bunch of different failure modes that you currently get with machine learning hmm. ways that they don't do what we intend also explains potentially how those problems could get worse as AI becomes more advanced and you know has more responsibility in society. And I guess is trying to point towards like technical solutions to those. So, so that's one angle. Then you've also got the kind of strategy and policy side. Given that ML or AI might end up you know, playing a very big role in business, in government, in decision-making in society, how do we make sure that that is scaled up or that that's deployed in a sensible way? And kind of what role, what role, if any, should the government have? And how do we make sure that the organizations that are developing this AI do it in a safe way? Like, how do we make the economics and the politics of this play out such that they want to uh, design very robust systems that they don't deploy things before they're safe? And in particular, how do we avoid an arms race between different organizations? So if you have multiple businesses, potentially like all developing AI, there's kind of competitive pressure that forces them to potentially deploy it before they're completely sure that it's that it's safe to do so because they want they want to make money soon uh, otherwise completely. they get crowded out. And this um, is such a large opportunity too. So just to put it in perspective, it's probably like the first company that even comes close to a level five self-driving car or some type of general augmented intelligence. I mean, you're talking about what it would be instantly worth like ten times their current market cap. They would be worth a couple trillion dollars. Like, is that safe to say? You think? 
if you could design an AI that was able to do human level reasoning, like right. at an acceptable cost, I mean, it'd be worth tens of trillions of dollars market cap, like huge. That, that's where almost all of current global GDP is going is to pay humans to complete tasks. Right. Uh, so yeah, the, the, the rewards here are like potentially larger, I think, than any other business that's really existed because you would just be like about two thirds of like global GDP go to labor, go to humans to move things around and do thinking tasks. If you can just automate that, this product is potentially going to be making 60 or trillion, 60 or 70 trillion dollars of revenue per year. Uh, you know, and then the economy keeps getting bigger because it's going to be better at that. So, Which is why companies like Open AI that shifted from nonprofit to for profit, they supposedly have capped their investor earnings at 100x whatever they invest, yeah. um, which I, I think is fascinating. But I would love to hear your thoughts on that situation. And yeah, what you think is the future for Open AI now? Yeah, interesting. I only heard about that, that shift a few days ago, and I haven't read their blog post about it, so I sh shouldn't speak too much out of turn. I think it potentially makes sense as a, another way of growing the project more quickly to, to make some returns so that they, I guess they can reinvest in, the, in their work. Sure. Nothing wrong with that. I suppose uh, you, you might worry about them drifting from the original goal of right. producing AI that benefits everyone if, if they're now saying, well, you know, we want to keep some of the money. I know the people there personally, and I, and I have quite a lot of confidence in them. So I suspect that this is probably a good move. Yeah, the people I met from the team seem to be great people. You know, it's a situation where you can't know everything about someone but i think just interacting with someone a couple times is a pretty good measure of like what type of person they are yeah um, i've done several interviews with people at open ai and i think their desire to make ai go well for the whole of humanity is 100 percent sincere. genuine yeah, yeah for sure so outside of machine learning and ai is that is that the singular would you say that's the singular focus of your your company or uh it's like it's a pretty big focus right now but uh no not at all i so this is another thing we're interested in working on is building kind of effective altruism as a movement, like improving the intellectual foundations, getting ensuring that we understand better, you know, how do we measure impact? How do we figure out what does a lot of good in the world? And then getting, I guess, more people to get involved in doing that, do, doing that research and then also encouraging people to act on it. Uh, that's another area. We are just tentatively taking steps into figuring out how do we improve relations between US and US and China, which we think is like a potentially very so big important. challenge in, in the 20th century and like something that relatively few people are working on relative to the stakes of that. So we have, we have some, some like tentative people who are like looking into what can plausibly be done there that's not being done. Anything you share about that? Because this is a topic I'm really, really interested in because that is the, we need to get that solved immediately. And I think that it's going to be solved if we can have just a lot more communication, interaction, and then uh, the cross-pollination of uh, investment and different type of companies partnering up. There's the famous quote, like when goods and services don't cross borders, armies will. And it definitely is the case here, I think, with the US and China. So what's your, what's your read on it? It's a somewhat sensitive issue, obviously, so sure. I probably shouldn't talk about it too much. But I guess uh, reading Graham's uh, Destined for War is probably a very good primer on this. It's a book where he describes how in the past, when you've had shifts in like the balance of power globally between like one empire and kind of the next one, how very often they end up fighting one another because the, the group that was more powerful in the past uh, like is not willing to cede control to the other and they fear what will happen once they've done that. Even though at the time people say they shouldn't fight because this is pointless, this would be so destructive and both sides are going to lose, they, they repeatedly do this. So he tries to learn lessons from history of like how, what could we do that would make it less likely that, that the US and China would, would fight one another. He thinks it's like completely unnecessary for the US and China to have conflict, that they have like much more interests in common than they do apart. There's very little, like China does not threaten any of the core interests of the United States in practice, not even if they had a much more powerful military. Uh, they're not like threatening to attack like the US mainland, but not, not, not at any point. In, in as much as they conflict, it's usually over things that the US just does not ultimately care that much about. They're just like not core interests. But there are just lots of examples of things happening that kind of no one really wanted. No one really wanted World War One. No one wanted it to turn out the way it did, but, but it happened nonetheless because you end up in these traps. So trying to figure out for example, it could be very useful to have transparency about the military prowess of different countries. Because one way that you can have a conflict between two countries is if one side thinks that they're more powerful than the other, and the other side thinks that they're more powerful than the other because they've miscalculated. If you have transparency about like who would actually win in a conflict, then that potentially prevents it from happening because one side will know that they'll lose and they won't do it. 
Uh, gotcha. Yeah. And so I'll, let me push back just a little bit with that. So sure. I think that simulating conflicts is very, very uh, dangerous to a certain extent. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's one of those subjects where I'm speculating here, but would you want to keep that done basically behind closed doors and then have the type of media or the type of content that you do put in the public arena to be a narrative of an ideally like actual collaboration. So basically like my hypothesis here is that you just want way more collaboration in any type of communication. Basically the rate at which you can accelerate communication and interactions between two different groups, that's what you need to focus on is the metric to accelerate because I, yeah, I just get worried that you know, when you're in the military, speaking from experience, it's very easy to, that's your job. Your job is to win at those conflicts. Your, your job is not to preempt them. Yeah. And yeah, so what are your thoughts on the public discussion around this? Is there an opportunity for people to get involved and start working with China, you know, learn Mandarin or to basically remove that view of them as the other and start to view them as a collaborator? What do you think? Yeah, so thinking from a, from a public point of view, I've kind of spitballed this idea that it would be good to have an organization that just promotes like how wonderful China is. So there's like things to not like about China, but there's a lot to like about China and about Chinese people. China has done many things that have benefited the United States. You know, its economic development has like brought so many like cheap goods and new innovations mm-hmm. to the United States. And that's not something that like anyone really has an incentive to to promote. If you're running as a politician, kind of, the, it's much better to run a message of like, oh, China is like beating us in this way to create this kind of competitive idea. It's like, oh, we're getting screwed over by this other country. But I think the reality is, the U.S. overall has benefited enormously from China's rise, at least so far, and can potentially continue to do so uh, mm-hmm. if they build economic ties. So, uh, so far, for example, China has mostly been copying like U.S. innovations rather than developing its own ones. But it's approaching the technological frontier in a lot of areas and is at the point where it's kind of doing best practice in many different industries. And now it needs to innovate for itself in order to, to increase productivity. And that's the point at which like the U.S. can start benefiting back from all of the research that, that the U.S. is doing, all of the fixed costs that the Chinese incur. The U.S. can benefit sure. from that through its, through its own research. And there's like many other ways I think that the US stands to do like perfectly well to benefit from from the rise of China. But there's not really many people going out in public and making that case. No. I mean, poss- possibly the Chinese government could fund people to do that, but I think then they would lose credibility. So someone who just believes this intellectually, who thinks actually, you know, we should be the US and China should be at, should be friends. There's like no reason for conflict, and there's like so many ways that we can benefit one another, and just goes out and sincerely promotes that message, not because they're like being paid to do so, but because they believe it. I think that that could potentially be be really useful, and it would also be very honest. I haven't like gotten feedback on whether there's ways that that could backfire. I'm always worried about like, giving any ideas in this area because I think in general people can underestimate. Especially with public campaigns, when they're speaking publicly, they can underestimate like how much harm they can do by saying the wrong thing. Uh, But that's that's such an important point to remember. I think because so many people, I think throughout history, whether they were writers or philosophers who created books, their teachings, their ideas were applied in all the wrong ways, all the ways that they did not attend. And you can just go down the list, whether it's like Nietzsche or Karl Marx or you know anybody. It's dangerous putting ideas out there, right? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, we see that even just at the level of, you know, I write a blog post and then I see that people have totally misinterpreted it. But that's like such a small scale. It's like mm-hmm. me writing potentially to people who like are familiar with my work. And even then, like I can't really communicate my ideas accurately. The most common thing is people kind of read the, the headline and the first paragraph and then they they, yes. they, they like lose all of the subtlety and then that can make the, the message inaccurate. But then if you're going out into the media doing interviews on cable news saying particular things. And then other people are kind of repeating it and changing it. Right. It becomes extremely hard to predict. What all the, the context gets are. taken out. And, yeah, exactly. So, for example, like we could go out and try to promote our ideas in, in China. I think that we should be pretty cautious about doing that. 
because we really want to understand how do people in China react to these mm. messages. Like it's obviously it's, it's a very different language, different culture. You kind of want to translate things correctly, and you want to think, you know, how does this fit into the ideas that people already have? Because if you just go, I think if you just take many things in English, especially like kind of ideological things. And translate them into Chinese directly, and then just start promoting them. I suspect you're going to get a pretty bad reaction, and one that you Completely could have like agree. gotten if you just focus focus grouped it and figured out. Well, yeah, you know, actually, with like some small modifications, or, like some changing in the language, or some changing in how we like where we situate this set of ideas, you can get a much better reaction. So I'm kind of in favor of people in general being cautious, not running their mouths, think carefully about what you're going to do,、uh, and like cross the river by feeling the stones. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think it's a great idea too. Before you start to get too Crazy about prescriptions for things to get direct experience on the ground or in person in those scenarios because I, I can't even tell you like the number of different times where I had this conception or idea in my head about what something was whether it's Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, a big tech company that I thought I knew, and then when I got on the ground in front of those people and I had direct experience in the physical world in real life IRL style. My whole view changed. Have you had that similar experience? I mean, obviously, like most people do. But what examples do you have from your life where you had this idea in your head about who somebody was, and then you got into contact with them and realized that it just was not the case at all? To be honest, I think almost all the time, people tend to come across as a lot more aggressive online, for example. And their idea, well, almost always, people's ideas come across as more naive and simplistic than they really are、mm -hmm. across the board. And you just always have to correct for this that people have only so much time. They're writing things online. They're like speaking. They've got like a message that they like to send. I guess sometimes people are just actually naive. Sometimes they haven't thought about it, and you identify weaknesses in their view that they haven't thought of. But I think more often than not, at, at least in my experience, if you go and talk to them, they are aware of these potential objections. It's just、sure. they, there's only so many hours in the day, and they can't be addressing you know objections that you're coming up with in, in every single article.、So、I guess that's one thing that I always try to adjust for is that people are less stupid than they seem. It's a great and, reminder. Yeah. When you're in person, you can see people thinking, and you、yes. get like all of these subtleties. When you're in writing, that often doesn't come across unless someone's been been very careful. Yeah, they're the written word.、Uh, so, you familiar with、uh, McLuhan at all, and his、uh, or his his ideas about like linear print based text? You know, it's left to right. There are a bunch of biases that creep in when you have a print culture, basically. So, his theory was that any type of print culture wasn't going to be able to see and feel what other people meant as much as a culture that was based on. Togetherness, family, community, real-world interactions, kind of. So I think that's important to bring up here because we're increasingly behind screens and devices all day long, and we have filters that are put, whether they're social media networks or any anything like that. We have these filters that are put on our world. So, what are your thoughts on social media and kind of like the future of effective altruism? Does social media have a role to play, or is it going to inhibit a lot of your goals? Yeah, so、uh, McLuhan's the、uh, the medium is the message, yes, guy, right? Yeah. yeah, I guess I mean you see that enormously with social social media, right? So you've yes, got Twitter is like 140 character tweets, so it's like, well, what do you get? You get like very short and abbreviated, misunderstood <laughs> ideas. I mean, obviously that's going to be all the day case. long. Yeah, I think that the filter bubble thing is interesting. I, I recently read a paper which suggested that actually people are less filtered on social media than they are、uh, in real life. So obviously, yeah, you do have filters on social media, but then in real life you do as well. So you, know,、yeah. you go to church, you go to school, you go to like your business. You've also selected there people who agree with you. Right. And it seems like there's more spontaneous discovery of people who disagree with you online, and it's possible that in fact like that's what's driving people to get so angry online. A lot of the time is that they're constantly encountering ideas that are conflict with what they believe, and so it's like makes、thing. them outraged. Right. Yeah. yeah. Potentially could be good. I mean, it's it's just very hard to know what the yeah where, where the balance. Slides there, and it's、uh, so new. It's as a technology, it's a almost brand new. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a very important issue. I've heard podcast episodes and、uh, you know read essays about this, and but I, I don't I don't know ultimately what we should be doing with social media. It does seem so. I, I imagine that. 
the more wrong an idea was, the more likely it was to be promoted, the more likely someone was to post it. Uh, it seems like I'm that's- right, a- I believe you. Okay, yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, but, go ahead. okay but imagine that sure, hypothetically sure. for the sake of argument. It seems then that society would just go mad because like the more incorrect, like if an idea is really wrong, then it gets copied and then people hear it a lot. And then they kind of, things that are true just kind of get crowded out. But we do partially have a system for that, which is that people want to post things that they hate, that they are outraged by. And so basically the more terrible an idea is, the more, the more either like more abhorrent it is. Yeah, the more it gets magnified and the more people see it. And I think that's something that we should really try to minimize. I, I try, for example, to not post on my own social media like anything that I'm that I'm outraged about because you're participating in this in the system where like inaccurate ideas are getting pr- promoted more which is just terrible <laughs> it is and i think it it pushes everybody to the mindset where you're just on edge and there's some recent research that shows smartphones by themselves just trigger an anxiety so a person becomes more anxious the second you pick up your device uh, <laughs> almost because you associate it with all of the worst news that you've ever received through the device. That's what your brain is gonna be hardwired to remember. Um, yeah, I've had to do pretty extreme things too. Well, I'm like on social media quite a lot. I post a lot of articles. I've got my own content to, to share out there, but I've, I've managed to completely block off the Facebook newsfeed. So I don't have Facebook on my, app, on, my, on my phone. I have like no way to get into it because I don't even know my password. So I use, you know, in Chrome, one of those extensions that makes sure that I can never see a post. So if I want to see someone's posts, I have to go specifically to their page and seek it out. That's the only way that, that I'll encounter other people's. Uh, That's other a people's great work. idea. And then on Twitter, I also uh, don't have that on my phone. And I like unfollowed basically everyone. And I, I just have like a list of bookmarks of five people to 10 people whose tweets I think are like consistently good. And I've had to... There's people whose tweets were good, but they would also post things that just made me anxious. They would post about like sure. something that they hated, something that they saw that they hated. And I just like, I can't get up every morning and just read no. about something that, like, what is the stupidest thing that someone said on Twitter while I was asleep? That's just like not a good way to start the day. So I've, ha- I've had to have had to shut that out. Have you found individuals who share those things on Twitter? Because this is my personal experience, basically. I'll try to follow someone. And the second that someone becomes outspoken about politics is almost the second that I just can't, I just can't follow him anymore. I, I just, there's a famous philosopher, Jacques Ellul, I think, who says that there are no more political solutions. There are only technological solutions. And mm. if you define technology as the ability to do more with less, so it doesn't have to be a digital technology. It could be just a method of communication. It could be something in the real world. If you think about that message, and if you think about the political message, I just don't see us being able to make any progress in politics anymore. I see it being important. I see it voting and participation. I, th- I still think that's important. But what do you think about the future of politics? Is it is it useful to talk about at all? Yeah, I think I think I'm more pro politics probably than you are, and maybe like more more skeptical of tech uh, by itself. So I don't want to you know get up on my high, high horse because I'm like potentially political on social media uh, as well. Please do. I, I, yeah, yeah, please do. Oh no. So on social media, I, I like do post political things. And I, I used to post more like outrageous things. I guess during 2016, I thought politics was going very badly. Hard, I was like, hard I was dismayed. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was part of this this whole thing. And possibly I'll be drawn into it in 2020 again. But in the meantime, I've been like trying to post like more substantive political things, like actually trying to inform people how could things be better, what policy should we, we be promoting. If there is an election on that day, then you tell people to go vote. I'm like happy to do that. But you don't want to be like making people mad all the other like 365 sure. days of the year. And I would say um, too, just a quick caveat that a lot of policies are kind of like technologies in and of themselves. I'm not trying to be like tricky in this this argument or like backtrack, but I, I do feel that the US constitution is like one of the best open source operating systems that's ever been devised. Um, it's not changed very often though. <laughs> it's, it's not changed very often, but I, I don't know if it's a feature or a bug. Um, but I guess you're saying you can build a lot on top of it. You can build a as, lot, as a yeah. And it's still, it's still possible to change. It might be 
too hard. But yeah, so just yeah. tangent. So so in terms of politics getting better, I mean, I think it was better three years ago. I think it was better 10 years ago. It was like almost certainly better like 30 years ago uh, in terms of like people being more constructive, I think, in, sure. in, in, in Congress. I mean, maybe I'm just like saying too much about my political views, but I think no, no, you know, the, if the, someone other than Trump wins in 2020, then I think most of the Democratic candidates are like more reasonable people and balanced. They'll like consider policy more on its merits and I think have more compassion for other people. So it's never going to be great, but I think, right. it, you know, you can improve it on the margin. There's this interesting thing with politics that in as much as things are going very badly, or like in as much as the system is very bad, that suggests that there's the scale of the problem is larger, more potential improvements that you could find. But it also suggests that it might be harder to make those changes. Gotcha. Because it's like there's a reason that it's bad, which is that like people aren't reasoning very carefully, say, about this, or that the, the voting system is bad. Sure. Um, which means that there's more improvement that you could make. On the other hand, it means that it's going to be harder to make that make that change. But overall, I think there is a lot of leverage from getting involved in politics, potentially. The number of decision makers in government relative to the size of the budgets, uh, there's just like a lot of money per person. And so even if you only have a relatively small chance of, you know, really changing what legislation gets passed or where the budgets are allocated, there can still be a lot of social impact uh, in expectation. I think technology in general has made the, the world better so far. In as much as it's uh, as you really just do distrust that technology is going to keep improving the world, then you should be very optimistic about the future. But like the one thing that you should really worry about is things getting massively off track. Then you should be worried about these existential risks, these like catastrophic risks, because that's right. really the only threat. Then, if you just think technology is so, it, technology is generally so good uh, that like it's probably smooth sailing. The only way that that's going to be stopped is some catastrophe that prevents us from like continuing to advance as a technological civilization. I think you see many of those risks do occur through politics. What if we had a totalitarianism enabled by some new technologies? What if we had wars between countries? These seem like you know threats to the advancement really? of humanity as a species. So, and it's going to be very hard to deal with those risks without entering politics to to some extent. And potentially also, even if you think that technology is overwhelmingly good most of the time, again, uh, if you're thinking very long term, what you have to worry about still is like, what about the low risk, the tail risk, where some technology really goes off the rails and makes things worse? Like we're talking about social media. People were so naively optimistic, I think, back in 2006 about, oh, this is going to connect everyone. We're all going to get to know one another Completely. and love one another. Yeah. It didn't pan out that way. And I think maybe I'm a bit more pessimistic about technology than you are. Or I think that very often it's like a kind of a mixed blessing and that we should potentially be willing to just like advance technologically a little bit more slowly in order to more deliberately consider what impacts all this have, roll things out like more, more gradually than perhaps sure. than some entrepreneurs are keen to do. I, I think that's, uh, I think it's a great idea because I would say my view on technology is I'm pretty, uh, by itself, I, I don't think anything about it because it's, it's inert and it yeah. still is inert. There are a lot of humans that are manipulating it, they're interacting with it. But I think at the end of the day, it just comes down to the type of people that are wielding it and the type yeah. of people that have got all of this inherited technology because so much of it is inherited. So Bezos talks about this a lot where the infrastructure for him to build Amazon.com was largely already in place. The US postal system, you could just go down a list of other entrepreneurs who had paved the way for him. So in a sense, he was inheriting all this technology. The problem with inherited wealth is what we see when people win the lottery. You know, that's a small microcosm of what it's like to get a bunch of things free. So I think that the challenge of the next century is really going to be like, how do we get people to technology in a way that makes them appreciate it, understand it, and know how powerful they are when they get to have access to it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, so technology enables people to do what they what they want to do most of the time uh, sure. more than they could before. But like humans are not perfect. We're like uh, kind of <laughs> a, a mixed species. And we have some like some bad impulses, I'm right? Thinking to myself, yeah. So then just kind of empowering us. Um, right. It's a mixed blessing because humans are kind of a mixed blessing. We have like positive impulses and negative ones. So for example, 
developing nuclear power and nuclear weapons. It like allowed us to do many good things that we want to do, like you know just develop our economies and improve our health and so on. But it also created these new weapons that potentially enable bad impulses of ours to do much more damage than they could before. Nuclear is kind of the classic case of a technology where it's like very clear that it created this new catastrophic downside that, that didn't exist before. Mm-hmm. And I think that we should be worried about what is the next nuclear power thing where it's like, yes, it has positive outcomes that, that could happen from, it, but it could also be extremely negative. And so we need to invent it and scale it up and like make sure that who's using it like in, in a very judicious and thoughtful manner rather than just like, well, just give it to everyone. So I have synthetic biology in my head as the yeah. example of something that could potentially be really, really bad. Are you familiar with the precautionary principle at all that Taleb talks about with in reference to like synthetic bio and GMOs and stuff like that? Yes, uh, I think the precautionary principle has a lot going for it. I kind of prefer the reactionary principle, which is like okay, a slight cool. modification of it. Which is saying, so precautionary principle is if something could potentially cause human extinction or like some enormous disaster mm-hmm. that would be irreversible, then you shouldn't do it until it's proven absolutely to be safe. Sounds pretty good. The concern might be though that sometimes inaction can also create risks. So, for example, it could be that we need nuclear weapons or like nuclear power or like we need these technologies to defuse other threats that we face. Completely, like and we so, need synthetic biology to defuse a virus from space or wh- like whatever the worry is. Exactly. Yeah. So, I think it's more about trying to minimize the overall risk, all things considered. Potentially, that involves rolling the dice with some new thing that could be risky in order to like lower other risks. It's kind of a it's a slight modification, which makes the which makes sense. Like somebody better know a lot about synthetic biology, but the question of who that person <laughs> yeah. those people are it becomes a real real issue yeah I, I guess you see this with for example climate change I, I guess i didn't mention earlier i might just explain that totally believe in climate change i think it's going to be like bad but i think it's very unlikely to cause human extinction on or like a collapse to such a level that we could never recover i suppose also a reason that we don't talk about it as much is that fortunately there's so many people working on it already it's like a very well acknowledged risk uh, hundreds of billions of dollars really spent on, on on combating climate change and there's like millions of people who's top of mind for many many people yeah and I'm, I'm very happy that that's the case but it suggests that one extra person one extra listener to this podcast uh, if they go in and work on climate change probably will make a smaller impact there than they could doing something more obscure like improving relations between the us and china sure which seems like plausibly on a similar scale of importance given like how bad conflict between them could be so uh just, just bracket that but you see for example with geoengineering people completely understandably worry about how that could go incredibly badly that if you like start changing you know how much sure. how much heat is hitting the earth uh, by using like sulfates putting them up into the atmosphere that could end catastrophically and so the precautionary principle would say oh you shouldn't shouldn't do that because we're never going to be able to prove that it's like completely safe and it could end very badly on the other hand you have to weigh that against the risk of climate change itself so it could we could end up having to roll the dice on geoengineering if we're not smart enough to to uh, stop climate change before it gets really bad and we're going to have to at a certain point if we want to terraform any type of celestial yeah. body or other exoplanet i guess people would be less worried about it on mars that that seems like a safe place to to, to have a go yeah and it's it's fascinating though it could, because it looks like we're going to have to learn how to heat mars up in a major major way if there's any hope of geoengineering it because it's almost like our problems here are signposts like mm-hmm. our biggest faults whether it's like heating the atmosphere up or whatever the case is are going to point to solutions so that's yeah that that makes the proactive what you what you call it the proactive reactionary oh, reactionary principle, principle. Yeah. yeah i thought i like that a lot so when it comes to space and uh, threats from wherever, whether they're asteroids or comets or mm. you know anything like that, is there anything that's on your radar or your team's radar? Yeah, so threats from nature. Basically, fortunately, we know that risks from the natural world have to be relatively low because we've managed to survive. Well, humanity has been around a million years. Life on Earth has been around for four billion years or something like that, while these risks have been there in the background. 
and we're still here. So, and, and when it comes to asteroids and comets, for example, we can see, we can basically estimate the, f- the frequency of like large asteroids very accurately by looking at the moon, looking at other planets, mm. just counting them or like looking at the record on, on earth as well. And I can't remember the exact figure, but I think like the risk of a large asteroid hitting the earth in any given year was something like one in 10,000 or one in a hundred thousand. So that's like absolutely something that we should be concerned about. Uh, and fortunately, NASA has gone out and looked at, uh, I think they've like indexed most of the large asteroids and they're gradually working down and finding smaller asteroids. Uh, I think there's still some issues with comets that are coming from like unusual angles, more darker objects that are somewhat harder to see. There's still some some risk there and we should absolutely categorize all of those. We should also develop technology for deflecting them, which mm. uh, I think NASA's planetary defense systems, they have some group that's looking into this, like what would we do with asteroids? I think um, it's in the nascent stages. I, I don't even think they're anywhere close to being able to deflect something. I, when it's a long way out, yes, but for yeah, like right. those dark objects that you mentioned, I think that that's a major, major problem. That would be the the trouble. Yeah, if you can get it early enough, then like relatively small nudges, as you're saying, like yeah. deflect it. For, One far nuclear missile away. is enough to the, deflect. Yeah. yeah. Did Did you see that article in the New York Times recently? It was a paper l- looking at what would happen if we yeah blew up a nuclear missile or, or a hydrogen bomb on an asteroid. No. So basically, unfortunately, it seems like it breaks apart, but then the force of gravity pulls it back together again. It's, oh, well. it's very hard to break it up enough that it doesn't reform, that it doesn't just like pull itself back together. So that seems like deflection. Well, we have to go harder probably on the deflection thing rather than the like break it up option. And I think too, um, are you familiar with light sails at all and like the light sail technology? I think that that is the probably the most promising area where you could potentially like land some bots or robots. They would attach a light sail and then... You just have Steer, to make yeah. it more reflective, as I recall, because then so, it's like, like it, if you paint it white, for example, on one side, the side that's facing mm. the sun, then I think just basically when light hits an object and it reflects it, then it does slightly nudge it in the other direction. And there's like enough energy coming from the sun that it would very gradually change the angle just enough to not hit the earth. If you get it early enough, it might be challenging. Cool. So I absolutely do worry about like natural risk, like asteroids, super volcanoes, another one. But I think if we destroy ourselves this century, I think it's far more likely to be the result of new things that humans have created, like changes of circumstances that we've caused ourselves rather than just the background uh, risk from from nature. Things that we can't predict now or something specific? Well, okay. So what, what, what's the argument here? We could potentially link to it to a paper that, that tries to weigh up this like, how great is the risk of catastrophe from humans versus from nature? Concludes that the risk from humans is much greater. So one thing is we just we can look at all these risks. We can look at supervolcanoes. We can see how often they happen. It's very rare. Look at asteroids. See how happen, it happens. Very rare. Look at other planets. Like how often do they get irradiated by a supernova? Very rare. But we just don't have a similar argument that like nuclear war is a one in a hundred thousand per year thing. That just seems you have to be so overconfident. You have to feel like I really understand what causes nuclear wars, and I know that like on every level, it's like absolutely not going to happen. And, like, this could never happen by accident. In order to think that it was as low as that, I mean, I think realistically, the risk of nuclear war per year is more like one in a thousand, possibly even one in a hundred, which because, already, which yeah, already means that like nuclear war alone is like much larger than the risk from asteroids. Definitely, if you just think about the amount of people it takes to actually detonate a nuclear weapon, it's not that it's not that many at all. So yeah. that would just. And we've had so many near misses over the years. Um, I mean, fortunately, I guess now we're like probably safer than we were during the Cold War. The technology is somewhat better. There's like things are a bit less heated. We can't be sure that that's going to persist for the next hundred years. Not at all. It's like you could end up with a nuclear Cold War between China and the US. Both of them are modernizing their weaponry. So so is Russia. And so many of these near misses are terrifying. I don't know any of the stories off the top of my head, but do you know any that you can share? Oh, yeah. So an interesting one is... um, so Akapov is the is the name to search for for this one. So during during the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was a nuclear armed Russian submarine that was uh, hanging around Cuba. U.S. people might recall uh, was uh, trying to uh, embargo the island or trying to prevent like any ships coming mm-hmm. in and out. Probably the most tense week of the Cold War. Now, in order to enforce this uh, embargo, some U.S. destroyer ships near Cuba started. They found that there was submarines down there. They started dropping dummy depth charges to try to force these submarines to surface. Turned out that they were, so they were nuclear, like fully nuclear armed. 
Russian submarines that didn't realize that they were dummy depth charges. So they were stuck down there for hours being depth charged constantly by these ships. They believed that World War III must have started or this otherwise wouldn't have happened. And the commander of this submarine wanted to use nuclear weapons to destroy the ships, which they easily could have done. They could have just launched their, their weapons mm-hmm. and destroyed like the whole US fleet there. Now, this was this would- before or after the Bay? This is after the Bay of Pigs, right? Uh, this is after the yeah, Bay of Pigs. Yeah, of course, yeah, the Cuban yeah. Missile Crisis was partly a reaction to the Bay of Pigs. So the captain of the submarine wants to do this. Fortunately for humanity, the only reason we're here is that the commander of a larger submarine fleet happened to be on that particular submarine that time. And his decision took precedence. And this is Arkhipov. And Arkhipov, therefore, was able to override the captain of the submarine and say, uh, no, we're not going to use them. We're just going to stay down here. And so you have to imagine they're down there being bombed for hours. The temperature in the ship was getting like 45 degrees. They're like passing out from heat. They're also running out of oxygen. So there's a high chance that they'll like either die of heat stroke or die of carbon dioxide poisoning. And, or the but, depth charges that they don't even know. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, which they didn't realize were, were dummies. So Akapov, I guess he suspected, well, I don't know exactly what his reasoning was. I don't know whether we've actually ever gotten that in record. We, we, we may. But he may well have just thought, well, if it's World War Three, then we're all dead anyway. So, But if it's not, then if I launch this, then this is probably going to lead to an all-out war between the US and, and Russia. Basically, the US had decided that if they got like nuked, then they would like retaliate all out. So then they would like destroy Cuba with all of their nukes. And then interestingly, it turned out that there was lots of nuclear weapons, like much more nuclear weapons than anyone realized on Cuba or already on the island. And that they had independent launch authority to like destroy the United States with them if they were attacked. So this was like an incredibly fragile situation. And one person like this, this Arkhipov person with their decision to not launch it, to override the leader of that ship, basically saved the world from like a very likely saved the world from all that Armageddon. And, and that's the kind of like, I think a lot of people have this sense, oh, smart people are in charge. The world's no, basically no, no. safe. The world is kind of stable and will just get better. Yeah. I, I don't think that it is like that. I think the world it's is not. extremely unstable and chaotic and things can go badly or, or well, depending on decisions that that, that that people make. It's not all predetermined and it's not all for sure. It's not all safe. Completely agree. And especially in the military there, it's a scenario where I was fortunate to brief a roundtable of generals after I left the military to talk to them about the military's lack of a useful reintegration program and how they might go about building a better one. And there's some great people there, but in order to fix the military, it's very important that we be open and honest about the uh, caliber of people that are making decisions at the top. And there are some people there that are uh, dangerously unbalanced. And it's a a topic that is... um, you know, people have told me like not to talk about it publicly and that's a threat. I'm going to do it. It's important to talk about because like Kubrick made Dr. Strangelove for a reason. Like it was not just an artistic statement. It was a profound statement about the lack of philosophy and vision and long-term thinking at the upper ranks of the military. And this is a really important topic. So I'm wondering right now, like I'm already thinking like, are they having this case study of Arkhipov or what was his name? Arkhipov. Arkhipov. Is that a case study that's taught? uh, It has to be, right? Yeah, it's reasonably well known, although I think some of the details only came out like within the last 10 or 20 years. So if you want to read that story in full, uh, you can read uh, The Doomsday Machine by Daniel Ellsberg, uh, who I actually interviewed on the the show for a couple of hours. So Daniel Ellsberg uh, leaked the Pentagon Papers, you may recall. He was involved like forming nuclear policy during the Cuban Missile Crisis, trying to figure out exactly what to say. So he was like very central uh, to to this whole thing. And at the time, he thought that he was doing the right thing, that he was lowering uh, the the risk with the kind of the messages that he was recommending that they send to the Soviet Union. And then later realized that everything that he was doing was actually making the situation worse, which he described in the book like oh, he, he was so ignorant of like what was actually happening on the ground that right. he was constantly making recommendations that he think could have caused a nuclear war that's fascinating um, I'll, yeah, I'll check it out so th- that's a subject too where with our increased reliance on uh, computer systems and software and with cyber terrorism it's something that 
I think is a very real threat because the US and China are doing this ridiculous, and Russia too, for that matter, and every major superpower are doing this, uh, running a bunch of horrible experiments where they're hacking, they're trying to hack each other's systems nonstop. And I think that the rate at which they're going to stumble upon miscommunications and mis, you know, mixed signals again and again is uh, terrifying, yeah. right? Like, so how do you view cyber war and cyber terrorism? Is there anything you're thinking about there? Yeah, so th there are other people who, who are better experts on this than me. I know it's an area of like great interest to people who are concerned about like AI policy or AI strategy. In as much as this is rolled out into kind of military or intelligence like applications, it's like how could that be destabilizing or not? So obviously, for example, if we develop like machine learning systems that become extremely good at hacking like the other side's computers and potentially destroying them or like making them not function when, mm -hmm. when you want them to, that is very destabilizing from a nuclear deterrence point of view because you could potentially like use this to like quickly hack the other side's nuclear weapons and then prevent them from firing them in some way, and then you could you have like the potential to, to do a first strike and the other side knowing that this is a possibility that they might deactivate your weapons will want to fire first so destabilizing in that way i guess it also creates this kind of new class of attack that people don't know what to make of so we know that if like the us shoots a russian ship on its own territory that that's basically a declaration of war so they know not to do that but then what if you're like hacking you know the other side's military systems sure you know just collecting data that's that's not really a declaration of war that doesn't that's going to start a hot war but what if you start like deactivating them is that like an act of war what um, if you inadvertently oh yeah, yeah you inadvertently do that uh, and what if they don't know who's invading the system what if it's like not the united states but they think that it is it creates a lot of like yeah uncertainty about attribution people don't know what the norms are around this that and which can potentially create like escalation that, that no one really intended and that uncertainty of the who the actors are or who the uh in machine learning and ai parlance like who are the agents that have been created and like what are they doing yeah. is, uh and where did they come from that's something that is being i'm a big fan of bitcoin and blockchain but it is possible now to have an anonymous group who built something that many many people use and they have still no idea about who created it or why yeah. Um, so the ability to create these anonymous agents is, uh, it's a real thing. Yeah. There's, um, a really good book. Unfortunately, the name of it is escaping me. It's, it's about Stuxnet, this like extremely advanced cyber attack that the U S and Israel put together against, um, Iran's Iran, nuclear, Iran, so nuclear facilities. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't remember the name of the book, but like the last third of it, like moves on from that specific case to say, well, how is the, how is cyber warfare going to change the nature of war? Mm. As I recall, I think the author was a little bit more worried than I am. I feel like probably like this seems like something that we should be able to, to, to figure out without it escalating. But in as much as we know that like the current thing hasn't led to war yet, any change is like makes should make you nervous because you're like, well, the current situation, we have some evidence that it's stable. But this new thing where we have all kinds of new attacks that people can engage in, that it's probably more likely to be worse than better. Uh, sure. Yeah. And if it's better, we probably won't, won't know until like we're onto the next thing. And like we're, every time you change it, you're like rolling the dice with this new circumstance. So what are you, if you have time to take take it away from work and relax a little bit. What are you reading? What are you writing? What are you thinking about that is not work-related? Oh, that's not work-related. Yes. Oh, uh, I, know, I know that so, can be tricky. <laughs> so uh, I studied economics. I have a background in economics. And I think I've never really been able to kick the habit of reading economics blogs and trying to, thinking as a macroeconomist, like trying to understand like why is unemployment where it is? Like how is the macroeconomy doing? It's like a golden age for economists in terms of blogging and publishing, right? There's so many great minds and voices out there. Yeah, so I, for example, I read Marginal Revolution Tyler um, Cohen, every day. Tyler great, Cohen and yeah, Alex Tabarrow. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're, they're, they're fantastic. I, guess, what, what I saw you had uh, Brian Kaplan, I think linked mm. up and he has some great research on education, kind of challenges the, uh, the higher education model. I like yeah. that. 
I disagree with Brian on many things, but he's like an amazing writer and a very clear thinker. Like even when you disagree with him, you know exactly why and exactly what he believes, which yeah. I really appreciate. Yeah, he's got three different books. So was it the recent one, The Case Against Education? The one about kids too. The one I think about, like yeah. larger selfish families are happier, selfish families. Yeah, yeah where he basically argues that parents have much less influence on how their children hmm. turn out than they think. So they should just have more kids and like put less effort into each one because it wasn't making much of a difference anyway. Right. Uh, and then the third one is uh, the, the myth of the rational voter, where he argues that kind of the reason that politics is broken is that voters don't know what they're talking about <laughs> to a large extent. Uh, and he like you know brings to, brings to bear a bunch of evidence uh, evidence for that. So I can definitely recommend uh, Brian Kaplan's books, uh, even even though cool. I disagree with him on many issues. What about fiction too? What what's your view on fiction? Is it useful? Do you read it at all? If yeah, so, I, what I don't what read do you read? Any fiction? I'm afraid. Uh, just what what is the reason for that? I guess you know I read it when I was a teenager. I read it when I was a kid. I think school I just, prescribed, or did you come both. across it on your own? So I guess as I got older, it just became school prescribed. And then I kind of just, I mean, I read a lot of books. I read like probably about a book every week. Sure. But it's like almost always uh, nonfiction. I just think just I always prefer to read a nonfiction book to, to a fiction book. I suppose I do have a slight kind of case against fiction. Or I think like people might not be nervous enough about fiction, like in terms of like how it can change your opinions without like necessarily being grounded in reality. So I think it's a huge risk. Yeah, because we were talking about this before we started recording where, you know, Hollywood or the media, they have this like, movie trailer version of life and yeah. you know what you see in the movies is not it yeah. never happens in the real world so yeah it's just i suppose it's like non-fiction books can be true like they can tell you like things that are true and things that are useful or they can try to mislead you but there at least there's, there's this constraint that like they're at least always claiming to like refer to actual to things in the actual world to like teach you lessons based on, or hopefully based on like data and like observations that the that the authors made with fiction uh, writers, I guess they, they also hope to improve your understanding of the world. And no doubt in many cases they do. But because they can like make up examples, they can make up cases. And I think it's like very hard as a reader, like, fundamentally for your brain to like distinguish between like things that it's read in fiction that are like not real at an instinctive level and things that, that have actually happened. So there's plenty of examples of people writing books that kind of have you know, very bad messages. You can have like pro-Nazi fiction, like why not? You can have a, a story in which like the Jews are terrible and like doing all these horrible things. And because you're not actually constrained by like real life in that, it's, it's in fact like easier to promote mendacious, like harmful and inaccurate messages uh, through fiction if you want to. I guess fortunately, most of the time, fiction authors are like good people and they're trying to try to improve the world. They're not trying to promote sure. horrible messages. Yeah. But I think that people should be like cautious about kind of what, what, what fiction they read because you, you're, you're giving agree. like access to this core part of your brain to like an author who is not, who is not only constrained by their own like moral fiber. I completely agree because I think a lot of fiction is create authors that don't want to acknowledge this but fiction the most popular kinds especially are created when an author is trying to known or un sometimes they know it sometimes they don't they're basically trying to resolve traumas in their past and they don't want to talk about this but it's clearly the case where if you have anyone who's trained the least bit in psychology they can look at fiction and basically see what that person was struggling with and mm. where, where they've been hurt where they've been abused and this is great that the author is able to process that in a healthy way and turn it into art. However, it's not so clear if it's great for millions and millions of people to to read this. Maybe it's therapeutic for them. I, I tend to think that that's why books like Harry Potter are, are therapeutic is because the author was trying to work through something through fantasy and many other people had to work through something similar. However, I think that the risks of fiction go unacknowledged. Generally. Yeah. So you need to know who the author is. Why are they writing the fiction? Because I do think there is great fiction out there, but I completely agree that it carries some risks. Yeah. I mean, it, it can also help you get inside someone's head and understand how exactly. other people think. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think people know that. Uh, yeah. And that, that should be acknowledged. It can also be also be very good. But yeah, there are these risks that people don't talk about too much. Or at least I think people who love literature and love fiction don't don't care, seem to care about that specific downside uh, quite so much. I agree. I mean, uh, especially with movies. For, well, there's this like whole bias as well with stories. That yes. For a story, like 
for a story to be interesting, it has to have like a struggle. It has to have kind of a main character. It has to have an arc, at least most of the time. Maybe like incredible directors or incredible authors can make something outside of that scheme work. But it means that like things about the world that don't fit into into that, that don't have like any key actors that have changed it. It's just kind of uh, impersonal systems, for example, operating where no one really could have fixed the problem. So there's like there's no like struggle that one person can make to try to fix something. Those things kind of just just get left out completely. So, for example, people talk about with AI. There's this like there's this potential scenario where like AI advances very quickly, has goals that aren't those of humanity, sure. and then just kind of kills us all uh, very quickly. Conceivable scenario, but you could never actually make a film out of that because it would be so boring. <laughs> because it's like there would be no ability. Like in this hypothetical, say it's like so much better than us. It just like kills us all very quickly. There's no struggle. Everyone just dies very fast because say like coats the atmosphere in dioxin. I'm not saying that's like terribly likely, but the thing is, you'll never see a movie about that because you can't get fifty to. 100 million dollars to make that yeah <laughs> or but, I, I don't know once don't want to say never but because all you have is, is a bunch of people working in an office until like suddenly everyone dies and then the movie ends there's, there's no arc there there's no you, yeah. need, you need like a character who could potentially change it so uh, there's probably like lots of other examples of like important stories that don't get don't get put into fiction all that much i mean the wire was an interesting example where it like tried there to portray go. like yeah. life uh, more as it actually is the depth of the characters and the fact that, and try to i guess actually understand the political economy it's understand the public choice aspect of this it's like well it's not all just a matter of whether people are virtuous or not it's a matter of the incentives that they face and the constraints really? that they face within yep. bureaucracies that worked really well in that case but it takes someone who's very talented to pull that off most authors are not even close and i think it takes a degree of creative freedom that the second you become an author and you have your work optioned good luck ever yeah. influencing what happens to it after that point because most authors who write the book they're not directly involved in writing the screenplay. And then the work is packaged by Hollywood after that. And the second you get into that territory, you don't have creative control. And it's a tricky subject to talk about, but most authors are powerless. They are marginalized because they're basically trained to write on their own as a solo person. And because of that, they aren't incentivized to build up a team of supporters around them. So it's you know, a big corporation or media conglomerate can steamroll over the creative instincts of an author. Like it's it's not even up for contest. So. Yeah. I guess I don't know whether it's sensible for people to take advice on fiction from someone who doesn't read it, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> to, no. to, to take it with a pinch of salt. No, no. I'm, because I mean, that's, you're kind of like voting with your actions there yeah. and that's, uh, it's to be determined like whether that's like a, a, you know, a good strategy or not. But at the same time, that's how you make really tough statements is through yeah. your actions over a period of like years if you're going to double down on that at, all for it yeah i suppose it's a bias as well if the only people who talk about literature are the people who love it yeah you're getting a selection effect there as well definitely yeah so outside of that you mentioned you're getting ready to move back to the uk soon is that where you're originally from uh i'm australian actually yeah okay wow so i lived in I grew up in australia lived there for i guess until i was 26 and then uh, moved to the uk so cool Eighty thousand hours and the center for effective altruism started in oxford and I went to join them about like six months after after that was founded. Oh, awesome. And we were there, for, I guess, for four or five years. Uh, and then then we moved to uh, California. Uh, we've been here for two and a half years, and now we're moving back. I love That's- it. So uh, one of our co-founders is actually, he's on vacation in Australia right now. Hope you're working there, Ian. Uh, just, just kidding. <laughs> um, so what do you miss about Australia? What, mm. what could America or the UK learn from Australia? Yeah, interesting. So- I think Americans are very hardworking, uh, to the credit, like more optimistic, more of a can-do attitude. I guess this is, I think this is probably true across America, but especially true in the Bay Area. Uh, people are like very committed to changing the world through working very hard and very ambitious. I guess I, 
there's something I like about the kind of the laconic like skepticism and cynicism and pessimism <laughs> of Australians, which like maybe is less conducive to being an entrepreneur, but it's like perhaps a bit more realistic, uh, and it leads to like better humor. I think better, pretty better useful jokes. for staying alive. <laughs> <laughs> Potentially, yeah. yeah I think there's a reason. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that we evolved this. Um, what are some examples of things that Australians uh, or your friends are just so skeptical about, or anything you can share? Mm, I guess in general, I'd say Australians are more cynical about human nature, perhaps, and also just when someone's like, oh, yeah. Uh, so Americans will come and be like, yes, I'm going to start this business. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to like change the world. I'm going to invent this new thing. Uh, you couldn't really do that in Australia because people would just take the piss out of you to such a high degree. If you're like the, the vanity or the like hubris that you would have about really believing that your thing is going to work would sink you socially. So instead, you have to be like much more modest. It's like, I'm trying to do this thing. I'm like, maybe it will work out. Uh, kind of being more pessimistic about about your your prospects. Yeah. So that obviously has a downside. I guess I do. I think if sometimes Americans, because there isn't this constraint of like people will pick on you if you're too optimistic, mm. uh, they can be a little bit more arrogant and perhaps a little bit more narcissistic or a bit delusional about how well things are going to go. Whereas that gets like, it doesn't get beaten. It gets beaten out of you socially, not physically uh, in, in Australia. And I think in like other Commonwealth countries a bit more. In Australia, people criticize this. They call it tall poppy syndrome. It's like people who are uh, like, who stand out, who try to achieve great things, get like cut down because people don't like it. Mm -hmm. uh, and you get this, I think you get similar phenomenon in many countries. I think Scotland is also famous for having this. Um, I think that is the origin story of humanity in a sense, because yeah. so if you're familiar with like any type of uh, anthropology, like most societies are organized around human sacrifice and like the world's most uh, widespread religion is a religion that's based on human sacrifice. So a bunch of listeners just dropped off. They're like, what the hell, what the hell are you? <laughs> What the hell are you talking about? How dare you insult me? But if you study uh, like the works of like Rene Girard or anyone, they would agree with, they'd be like, of course there's tall poppy syndrome because the best and the brightest or people who are different are targeted and scapegoated, whether they're ostracized or isolated or beaten down over a period of time by people. Uh, that's the human story uh, in a sense. Like we're hardwired to do that. It might be out of a drive for self-preservation. It might be because we're inherently evil. What, what do you think? <laughs> oh, I mean, so I think it's it's more complicated than that. So if you're interested in learning a lot about this from like a, an even deeper like historical perspective, there's this great book called A Hierarchy in the Forest, which uh, looks at kind of evolution of human psychology and looks at other primates as well. So humans are somewhat unique in the animal world in having like lots of individuals that we're not like bees or ants. We're not like, so we don't have like the genetic relatedness thing to fix this, but we have groups of people with relatively little hierarchy where anyone who tries to become the alpha and like lead a group is like very constrained. And basically we evolved this somewhat unique uh, system for sustaining this, which is that if any one person tries to dominate others, say you got like the biggest male, the most, mm -hmm. the strongest male who could in principle dominate or like beat any or anyone else in the group in a fight in a tribe of say 50 people. Basically, in order to sustain cooperation, we didn't just have like one individual dominating the group and like taking all of the food uh, and like partners for themselves. Whenever like any one person tries to like dominate the group, a group of the others will band together and like beat them back. So you get like the second and third strongest people like will beat the beat the first one. And so no one is allowed to try to like get two up themselves. No one is in this system. No one mm -hmm. is allowed to try to dominate others because then other people will band together and defeat them collectively. This turned out, I think, to be like a very successful model uh, for a species that needed to sustain cooperation in like larger groups than, than most other species do. You see like different versions of this kind of system in, in other primate species. So yeah, you can read all about that and like why it works in humans and, and not, 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 not others in that book. I think there's another aspect to it, which is at least some people fear that if uh, a member of their social group, it becomes very successful, then they're going to leave them because they'll be like too good for them. 
I guess you see that with families, uh, potentially a lot with friendship groups. What if they like do go get this PhD? What if they do like get this great job in DC? Then they're going to be like leaving the town that they're from. Sure. They're going to be leaving the friendship group. And now you get this brain drain. And people kind of, one way to resist that is to like sabotage the success of the most talented people in the group so they don't right. leave. I mean, that's like quite sad. It's like a bit evil in a way, but it's like perhaps also understandable. Uh, oh, it's, it's, like, it's, it's kind of human nature, right? And I think too, people are scared to figure out how fast or to what degree their friends are growing, progressing or learning and then finding others. So when I think about making friendships or hiring people or recruiting or anything like that, I think about like who is growing at a similar pace to me and to our team and everything. Because if you're not pegging your rate of learning or if your rate of learning is way different from someone else, it's going to be hard to associate with them after a period of time. Because, you know, after a single year, if you, you mentioned reading a book a week earlier, like if you read a book a week, you're going to be very, very different and have not that much in common then with someone who hasn't read at all. So how do you think about making friends, keeping friends, and um, obviously you're a driven person. How are you approaching that? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this issue of, uh, you know, I've kind of outgrown someone and like, I'm not going to be friends with them anymore. There's something that's like understandable about that, but there's also something that's like a bit disgusting about that. And you'd imagine that like, you just like leave behind all of your like family and friends because like, oh, I'm too smart for them. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. What to, um, to be honest, I guess I haven't confronted that all that much lately because so many of my friends come through work or come through my social circle that's associated with effective altruism, such that we're kind of all on this journey together, working together to, to, to solve these problems and understand them better. I think it does really pay to potentially like have two quite different classes of friends where you have like, oh, these are the people who are like, to some extent, work colleagues or like work associates or like people who are part of the mission that I'm trying to accomplish in life sure. that's like externally focused. And then also just have people who you're friends with, not for like any like- You've known forever or as yeah. long as possible or something exactly. like that. Yeah. yeah, people where you're not going, if they don't have exactly the same interests as you, you're still going to be in, like, because yeah. it's, it's a personal thing where you like know one another very well. And that, that could be like very, very hard to replace later on. So I think- yeah, I guess in effective altruism, people who are very involved, it's like potentially academics as well, kind of all of their friends end up being academics, potentially even within the same field, same academics. Uh, I suppose we have this issue as well that you can end up like be- becoming a bit like closed where it's like so many of the people you know kind of share your views and they've been selected for that. I do try to push against that and try to make friends randomly in, in other areas or find something that's like same. nearby, potentially like economics or, yeah. or politics. These are like other you know areas of my intellectual life. Uh, yeah, because what you mentioned with academics, it happens, everybody's prone to do that, right? It's easier for us to make these relationships and friendships with people who are doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, but there are definitely trade-offs with that. So what is the biggest problem? This is one of the last big questions I'll ask here, but what's the biggest problem with higher education and academics? And is there anything you're thinking about that, you know, if we solved this one thing or this basket of things, we could fix the whole system? Yeah, well, I guess on the student side uh, in the US, it's probably price. I guess, like, yeah, there's like lots of people talking sure. about There's something like, there's a lack of competition with like new universities springing up to provide good education. I think it's probably like something to do with the fact that like it's a lot about signaling and prestige seems to like create dynamics where like the, the oldest group can just charge a very large amounts and doesn't have to grow, provide like a service to more students. So that's like one thing that's going uh, wrong on the student side in the US that a lot of people have written about. I guess on the on the academic side or the, or the research side, I mean, there's like a lot of just bad incentives that people have talked about. I don't know that I have like super original points here, but but the fact that academics, I think, are not rewarded very much in proportion to how actually true their, their papers are is uh, quite bad. And they're not promoted in proportion to that either. Mm-hmm. They're like promoted in part to like how many papers they can get published, which is like how many results can you make seem true, which involves just like running lots of studies, like running lots of statistical tests. And whether like they're going to replicate or not doesn't really like change whether you get, get tenure or not. So there's... I mean, people have suggested lots of different different ways to solve this. The problem is it's like 
whenever you have a system that has like broken incentives, it's often not in the interest of the people who have accrued the most power within that system sure. to change it because they were winning on the previous game and they right. don't know whether they'll win under under the new regime. It also, I mean, it is just actually difficult because let's say that you started like checking academics work to like see whether their findings replicate. That's so costly. It's like you can't actually do that most of the time. It's totally impractical. Right. So you have to have like other, you have to figure out other proxies to like determine whether these papers are actually reliable that don't involve running running the experiment again. Which gets us you know, back to machine learning and AI. Hopefully like some advances in NLP can start mm-hmm. to figure out and then maybe tying that with some of the models that your team's creating to figure out how valuable things are and yeah, yeah that, that, that could be cool. Uh, I think IARPA is actually funding a group that's trying to use machine learning to detect like what are the tells on papers for whether they uh, have real result, whether the result oh, is true or not. And I suspect that they're going to find probably quite a lot of material to work with there. That um, yeah, that's really really important. You can look um, at the kind of statistical tests that they're doing, for example, and like you know what do the numbers like add up? Like how close was the p value? Or what kind of language are they using? I suspect there'll be a lot of like giveaways for whether something like yeah, how sincerely they're interested in the truth of the matter they were. Cool. And um, last thought here. I'm really curious to get your take on, so for all our listeners out there, many, many people are successfully employed in technology, they're executives, they're uh, high performers, they're business owners. What would you leave them with? What would you challenge them with? Or what thought experiment would you provide to them? Yeah, it's interesting. So I guess if if I was going to challenge people, I'd say that just growing the economy is not the best way to improve the world. Uh, you can create value by building businesses and uh, inventing new products and uh, grow, yeah, growing the economy, just like, providing value to consumers. But there's so many people trying to do that. Mm-hmm. There's like 80, 90 trillion dollars of like money that goes out effectively through the economy to incentivize people to deliver products to, to customers. The market is very good at doing what the market does. In fact, it's like it's made humanity much, much richer than it is before. We, we continue to get you know, big growth in GDP. People are becoming richer all the time. If you want to make the biggest difference possible, you should look at what stuff is more neglected, what isn't already getting done, what aren't there good incentives to do. And very often that's doing something other than entrepreneurship where the personal rewards for succeeding are are very large. You can make a lot of money, have a good time, get a lot of prestige. Look for things that are going to be systematically neglected because there is no business model that incentivizes people to provide this service. Like what is the business model for improving relations between the US and China? Maybe there is one, but a lot of the time there just isn't, which means it's going to be massively undersupplied by the market. And you potentially can go out uh, and deliver those services that the world desperately needs, those kind of global public goods that are not going to be provided by the market and which the government just might be not, not be smart enough to, to provide itself because we just don't have great systems for making politics function either. And you might stumble on an incredible business model in the yeah. process. And, yeah. Like yeah, Elon Musk has done that a couple of times now. There, there absolutely are opportunities to solve these things through business, but I think there's many opportunities to do very valuable things outside of business that people are not finding because the incentives to, to look for them, uh, the selfish personal incentives to look for them uh, are not there so much. So if you like, if you're motivated by altruism, if you're motivated by improving the world, then you can like look for other methods as well. Cool. I love it. Thanks so much. And for everyone listening, see you next time. It's been a fantastic pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that uh, pretty eclectic interview. As I mentioned, the next interview uh, with Andrew Lee is uh, more personal than the typical interview with me. Uh, but stay tuned if you want to know my approach to giving to the homeless or what I do to uh, maximize my own happiness. Uh, just as some background, uh, Andrew is the uh, Shadow Assistant Treasurer and the federal member for FANA uh, in the Australian Capital Territory. Prior to being elected in 2010, uh, Andrew was a professor of economics at the Australian National University uh, while I was actually studying there. And he holds a PhD in public policy from Harvard and is a past recipient of the Australian Young Economist Award. All right, here's Andrew. Rob, you work on issues that aren't just big picture, they're massive picture. 
what got you interested in that stuff growing up in Adelaide as you did? Yeah, I actually uh, don't have a great answer to this. Uh, I guess um, I got very, I was very interested in philosophy from a surprisingly young age, I guess around 10 or 11 and 12. I was like concerned with kind of moral philosophy and like, how do we ground science? Like, how do we know that empiricism is a good way of knowing about the world? Just these like really fundamental concerns that bothered me when I was, when I was very young. Um, and I guess that got me into reading you know, philosophy textbooks. And that, through that, I encountered kind of uh, Peter Singer and utilitarianism and, and other moral philosophies. And then I just kind of stuck with it, even though it kind of leads to unusual territory for a teenager to be thinking about potentially. Um, and yeah, and I guess like, I just I have tried to kind of act on that in my career rather than just go and do something uh, really, really normal and uh, accommodate myself to, to, to the economy. So I've ended up, yeah, working, I guess, at a, at a nonprofit that's kind of also like a, like a think tank where we try to really grapple with these yeah, big picture philosophical and moral issues and then figure out, well, uh, if you wanted to do the, the, the most good that you could we'll, in the we'll world. We'll get to that. Yeah. We'll get okay. to that. Right. You're, still, you're still in short pants at the moment. Sorry. I, I don't want to lose that. Yeah. Um, were your parents uh, into, into philosophy? I mean, it's not... It's a bit abnormal for a 12-year-old to be reading Peter Singer. Uh, it is a little bit unusual. I, I just, uh, I think I found a book that talked about Peter Singer just in the, in the high school library. Mm. Um, yeah, my parents are very smart. They were like intellectual. We would like debate a lot around the around the kitchen table. I don't think I think they were quite puzzled by my interest in this, though. Uh, they thought it was like uh, I mean, I came home and said I wanted to be vegetarian because I'd read these arguments on Peter Singer and so this is animal liberation. Uh, no, I think I'd read uh, writings on an ethical life or some compilation of essays where he okay. talked about this, and he, there was some essay where he explained why uh, factory farming is so cruel and how we shouldn't yeah treat animals. Yep. in the way that we do. Uh, and I came home, I think, at 13 or 14 and said, yeah, I don't want to eat meat anymore. Uh, my parents were somewhat dismayed by this, although they, they came around uh, relatively quickly. Uh, but no, I don't Have you eaten meat since? Uh, I mean, I have eaten uh, meat since then, but I've like mostly been vegetarian since I was, yeah, 14 or 13. Yeah. Um, so, was, yeah, I guess I'm like someone who's... Un I, like, I read arguments and then I tend to act on them. Uh, I think like a lot of people kind of encounter... Uh, these kind of considerations or, you know, they hear about, you know, ca mm. the case of vegetarianism, they're like, oh, that's interesting, maybe that's right, and then they, then they carry on. So I'm more likely to be like, no, actually, like, I need to grapple with this and take action on it. I think taking philosophy seriously is perhaps something that's, like, uh, yeah, unusual about, about what I do. Yeah, but so that's I, a really interesting point, interesting point, right? So you're, you're saying a lot of people kind of are able to compartmentalise it in, your, in their head. You need to, you need to act it out. I think that's right. I've actually gotten better probably at compartmentalizing <laughs> over time, but unfortunately I've already been grabbed, I guess. My life is already on a trajectory where I'm kind of, yeah, acting, trying to like, trying to act out my, my fundamental values. Um, but I don't, yeah, I don't really know where it came from. I think, I guess I'm kind of a believer that uh, to some extent our personalities are just shaped by genetics and biology. And it's possible that I just kind of got some genetic combination that causes me to uh, be like very literalist about philosophy perhaps or really want to like act on, or be like unusually sincere and wanting to act on, on my beliefs. Uh, perhaps even there's like evidence you can get uh, you get genetic inheritance on moral values so perhaps I might just have inherited genes that cause me to be like very concerned about like uh, the care moral foundation uh, and to like not care about so much about like other moral foundations talking about like yeah Jonathan Haidt's like five or six moral right, foundations right. there um, I love the way you're pushing this away from the notion that you might be deeply good towards the notion that you might just be <laughs> lucky in the genetic lottery to have, to have gotten some, yeah. some goodly genes. I think moral luck just means that kind of, there, isn't, there aren't really good and bad people because we're all like, I don't believe in free will. So uh, we're all just kind of automatons acting out like what, whatever inheritance we got, whether it's, whether it's biological inheritance or kind of cultural inheritance. Uh, 
Yeah. How can you not believe in free will at all, right? I mean, you surely, surely at some stage you're kind of making choices. Well, I guess I believe in compatibilist free will. So it's true that if I was a different person who wanted to do a different thing, then in some situations you would be free to do that. But I can't control what I want. So in like the most fundamental sense, I'm not free to choose at all what I do because I can't, because who I am and what I want is just determined by all of these things that occurred, like, occurred before I existed, in fact or by random like quantum fluctuations of this and that. And so ultimately, I guess I don't really believe in moral responsibility for this reason, because it's not clear how, given that your actions are, full, like, are determined by things that are fully out of your control, how you could be morally culpable for, for them. Of course, we should still punish people to create good incentives, but this is kind of the utilitarian line on, on criminal justice. We, <laughs> we should pretend that people are responsible for their, for their actions because it's good to do so, because <laughs> it helps, but not because it's actually true. Were you involved in uh, altruistic activities at school? Did you sort of uh, get involved in political campaigns or were you, were, were you involved in helping out in charities? Yeah, I, uh, well, I started promoting vegetarianism a bunch among my friends. I started giving away like, my pocket money to, to charity, although, yeah, I didn't consider the option of going out and trying to make more money to, to give away. Um, I, I guess, yeah, I got involved. I think I joined the Greens at some point, or I was like, uh, I became like quite, quite, quite lefty on the basis that, yeah, kind of more, more left in politics. Peter more... Singer is running as a Greens candidate exactly, uh, yeah. for Kuyong at that exactly. stage, right? Yeah, uh, I think that was slightly before, but yeah, uh, right. it was, um, that, that was kind of like, it's like the Greens seem to be, I guess, more concerned with you know, animal welfare and uh, climate yeah. change and other things that, that seem to loom, loom very large in my mind. Uh, then, interestingly, I kind of uh, got very into like pro market economics. Um, and came to think that that was perhaps like more more conducive to to well-being but mm. uh, uh yeah no i mean I, I i continue to like really pursue these ideas and think about you know how do they how do they cash out and, and what i actually ought to do uh i had very few well, basically no one around me kind of agreed with with my philosophy so that i think that did hold me back a bunch because uh it was maybe hard to remain like fully committed to something when everyone around you thinks that you're you're a little bit strange uh, but but eventually, I think on, on the internet, I connected with more people who shared uh, shared my views, and uh, then that like then then things sped up, I guess. Yeah, I remember hearing a podcast with David Brooks where he said that as uh, part of his conception of living a good life, he'd come to accept that he was going to be an earnest person, uh, and that earnestness gets a bad rap in a society that values uh, humour. Did you, at some sense, make peace with being earnest? Oh, I'm not sure that I am. I think uh, I post a lot of uh, yeah, satire on social media, and I think some people find it frustrating. I guess, uh, yeah, the social group that I'm part of is extremely into earnestness. Uh, and in fact, kind of my, like, uh, sardonic, like, humor style grates people the wrong way. Okay. I suppose I'm, like... Uh, I think people... So you're not in as compared to the guys you hang, the, the folks you hang out with at the Centre for Effective Health, right? Yeah, eighty thousand hours. But, <laughs> but compared to most people, on I the like, human yeah. spectrum, you're, <laughs> you're in us, don't you? Uh, I suppose that's true. Yeah, uh, people do say that about me. Uh, I guess maybe that's not how I like to conceptualise myself because I, yeah. I maybe I find earnestness uh, annoying in, in some way. But perhaps I just have to accept that as a character flaw. And did you find it easier when you got to ANU and you were studying genetics? Was that a kind of group of people more conducive to, uh, to the way in which you thought about the world and altruism? Yeah, uh, somewhat. I mean, obviously, at university, you're going to find people who are like, more interested in big picture philosophy ideas than, than you typically will at high school. Uh, I was somewhat surprised, though, uh, when I started studying science, um, how little natural scientists were interested in, in the bigger picture, you know, how society is organized yeah. and where humanity is going. You might think that they, I guess like some scientists are, but most scientists, I think, have to hyper-specialize in some specific research question that they're going to work on yes. uh, and if they're actually going to make any, any progress on it. Uh, and as a result, I, uh, 
got more interested in, in economics because I think this was like in the early days of the kind of economics blogosphere where mm. people were like shooting around idea, like yeah, playing around with very big ideas in, in economics uh, a lot. Uh, and for some reason, yeah, economists uh, seem to be very interested in about, well, how could we reorganize society? Like, why do we organize the world this way? Where could yeah. things go in the really long term? They, they seem to have a bigger picture view often than a lot of natural scientists. So, yeah, that's why I switched from, uh, well, I switched from doing genetics to both genetics and, and economics. Yes. Uh, and uh, did you think about uh, staying as an economist for a while? I mean, you, you had that stint at Treasury and Productivity Commission. Did you think that that was going to be a path you continued down, or did you always have an idea that you'd go into the, the world of non-profit? Uh, well, uh, when I started working in public service, or when I was finishing my degree, uh, the name Effective Altruism hadn't been coined yet, and there wasn't really this social movement or like set of organisations that, that exist today. So I really was a bit... I was somewhat at a loose end, not knowing exactly what I, what I was going to do. I think, in fact, uh, uh, building up career capital and experience and connections in the public service actually was, it was a really good option and um, uh, it's something that I, you know, I could potentially recommend that someone in my situation uh, do, do, do anyway. Um, what but did I guess, you learn? Uh, I, think, I guess we have become uh, very interested in a bunch of uh, policy issues, especially around kind of security and preventing war um, and like guiding how new technologies are developed and, and applied. Somewhat hard to do those in Australia, uh, but um, yeah, there, there, there are some potential avenues there. I guess actually understanding how government functions and how to ex how you exercise power and how you might right. cash out like desired outcomes in actual legislation. Um, I was building up some knowledge there, and that's something that I think effective autism as a community uh, somewhat lacks. Uh, we have some expertise in that, but but we need much more. Yes, there is a sense in which people can can often overstate the ability of government to to do risky things uh, and to, uh, to 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 try try a whole pot, portfolio of approaches knowing that nine out of ten might fail but one out of ten will be uh, extreme, extremely valuable um, yeah it's something that the government does does struggle to do I guess uh, because we're so concerned about kind of civilization civilizational stability uh, we're perhaps uh, not so keen on lots of risk taking I'm actually perhaps less interested in, in innovation experimentation than, than right. people might expect but yeah we're perhaps getting getting ahead of ourselves I suppose I do think of myself as kind of an economist now I, I like spend most of my time thinking as an economist I suppose mm. in, in my role and a lot, I guess if you listen to, to, to the podcast a lot of the questions have a very kind of economics event to them well, but you can sorry, you can flip that point around and still get the same the same result right so uh, people I think uh, taxpayers might be concerned about a government which decided to spend more than a trivial amount of, of money on a risk that they'd never considered before, um, such as uh, preventing meteor strikes. So. Right. Okay. So you're thinking, uh, yeah, can the government... So uh, in general, I think humanity is very bad at risk management, which is why there's a lot of really great opportunities to uh, improve the world by managing these like unusual risks that most people haven't, haven't thought about. And yes, like... We do kind of delegate it to the government to worry about things like meteor strikes or, you know, uh, what if we invent some new, very new dangerous biotechnology uh, that would destroy the world um, or, like, runs the risk of destroying the world. But in reality, uh, like, there's no one in government who really is responsible for thinking about that in, in, in most cases. Uh, and there's not enough pressure from voters uh, onto politicians to then mm. pass it on to the public service to actually allocate significant resources to worrying about, like, what are things that could really uh, take civilization off track. Um, and so it's, it's something that's like the private sector doesn't really do it. Like it's very hard to build a business around this. Yeah. Uh, the nonprofit sector uh, so far hasn't really gotten funding to do it. There's not many foundations focused on it. And yeah, the government, which would be the natural place to do it, has kind of been failing because the, the feedback mechanism uh, that causes you know, government to invest serious money in dealing with these kind of tail risks uh, yeah. isn't really functioning super well. Yeah. 
So a couple of years after graduating from the Australian National University, you head off to the Centre for Effective Altruism. Uh, what are your, your early impressions of, uh, of landing in Oxford and, uh, and starting work there? Well, I think uh, the first few days I was very impressed with the, with the, with the old buildings, but very, you quickly accommodate to that as, as kind of everything. Um, I think the, just the intellectual calibre of people uh, in Oxford is pretty off the hook. It's like a relatively small town and a lot of the people there are students or, or postgrads. Uh, so kind of any conversation you go into uh, can be like um, you know very deep in the weeds, and uh, you've really got to be got to be on your toes uh, to, to to keep up. I think that yeah that was uh, perhaps perhaps to be expected, but it was, it was it was it was a pleasant pleasant thing to discover. Yes. Uh, what do they have you working on? Uh, well, initially I was looking at uh, what charities um, most effectively reduce poverty or improve health in the developing world uh, for the first uh, six or twelve months. Um, which was difficult at the time. We had uh, very little resources to, to, to look into that. Uh, and we were, to some extent, competing with GiveWell, which a lot of listeners will have heard of, this, right. uh, this research outfit. Uh, Why were you competing with them rather than trying to complement them? Uh, so I guess I, I just arrived there. I, in, in the end, we ended up basically closing down that, that, that project because we realized that we should just leave GiveWell to do it. Uh, there wasn't really uh, room for, for two organizations to be looking at such similar questions. Um, I think at the time... Uh, we, I guess, weren't completely convinced that um, GiveWell was getting, every, was getting everything right, but then they yeah. very quickly improved uh, or like took on almost all of our ideas and were like, wow, we're kind of out of, we, we, <laughs> we've got nothing really to add at this point, so, so we should uh, shut that down and look at other, look at other issues. Uh, so later on, I've, yeah, lately I've been looking at um, what careers you could, like, yeah, if you want to improve the world uh, as much as possible uh, and you're perhaps a smart person in your 20s or 30s, uh, what, what job should you take? So it's kind of a much, much, broader, much broader research question, although we've had to narrow it down to you know, uh, a manageable number of problems that we actually specialise in or different uh, career paths that, that people could take. So this is the uh, 80,000 Hours organisation, yeah. uh, your website being? Oh, 80,000hours.org. Uh, and why 80,000 Hours? So 80,000 hours is roughly the number of uh, hours that you'd work in a, in a full-time career. Uh, I think it's um, 40 hours times by 50 weeks times by, times by 40 years. So it gets, gets you to 80,000 hours. Um, so I guess there's kind of two angles on it. Uh, one is that that seems like a lot of time uh, when, when you're starting out. So possibly you want to spend you know, dozens, hundreds, possibly thousands of hours thinking about uh, how you're going to spend all of that time. Um, on the other hand, 80,000 hours is not that many hours relative to the, to the, to the scale of the problems in the, in the entire world. So you're going to have to prioritise a lot and figure out you know, what little chunk of the, of the world's problems are you, you going to bite off where you think uh, you personally can, can um, get the most traction and have the biggest impact. Hmm. And where do people make the biggest mistakes? Oh, interesting. Um, I, I think the biggest mistake that people make is they uh, just end up working on a problem in the world that's somewhat chosen at random. It's just something that they learned about early on, uh, that they heard about from other people that kind of uh, grabbed, grabbed their interest, and then they, they start working on it, and then they have some expertise, so they, so they keep working on it. Um, I think that is a bad idea for, for multiple reasons. One is that uh, ideas or the problems that you're hearing about a lot are uh, ideas that are less likely to be neglected than others because if you're, if you're hearing about it there's probably already people promoting it and advocating on, on behalf of that issue so in fact it might be a kind of crowded issue where a lot is already being done to solve that problem and one one extra person potentially can't can't add that much on the margin um, I guess also just if, if you want to have the biggest impact in the world you'd probably want to look at like all of the problems out there think you know uh, rate them on a bunch of different criteria and then choose to work on the one uh, that, that's, that scores best. And we, we kind of score problems in the world on three different criteria. Scale, uh, which is like how many people does it affect and how much and you know, how long might it last. Um, attractability, which is like how easy does it seem to solve. And then this third criteria, neglectedness, which is like um, trying to get, uh, figure out you know, how much low-hanging fruit might be left given all the work that, that other people are doing. 
Um, and it's very unusual, I think, for people to systematically try to choose what problem they're gonna solve with their career um, using that kind of process. And, and because so few people do that, uh, you know, resources are all misallocated across different problems and you can get potentially you know, 10 or 100 times as much impact by, by being really systematic and, and choosing in an intelligent way. Hmm. So uh, if a young person comes to you and says, what should, what should I do? Uh, what, you, heard, you, su you suggest that they go through this mapping exercise. Uh, are, there, are there other sort of tips and tricks that you offer? Uh, I guess, so, so we have this career guide. We go through uh, all kind of a lot of different aspects of, of how you try to have more impact in your career. Um, I guess another thing is uh, people often try to rush to have a lot of impact uh, early on, potentially, rather than thinking long term and thinking, well, what can I do now to put myself in a good position to have impact in five years or 10 right. years or 15 years? So we have this concept of career capital, which is uh, kind of the experience that you have, the connections that you have, the credentials, like your ability to prove that, that you know uh, what you're doing, and also uh, money in the bank that you can use to take risks in your career. Uh, I guess yeah, undergraduate students, I think, very often look to immediately kind of accomplish something after they graduate or even do something you know, uh, while they're still studying. Uh, and sometimes people have the opportunity to do that. But for, but for most people, realistically, they're going to have most of their social impact in their 30s or 40s or 50s uh, once they kind of have more influence and, and, and more power over things. I think uh, taking a more long-term view in your career is uh, also often, often good advice. Uh, and I guess this, this depends in part on sort of what kind of an impact you're going to make. I'm thinking of the David Gallinson work on creatives where he talks about uh, conceptualists and experimentalists and the idea that the conceptualists have one big idea that the sort of uh, the hedgehogs in that Isaiah Berlin meta metaphor uh, who, who need sheer computing power, uh, brain, brain, brain computing power in order to make a, make a contribution. So, uh, you know, they're like uh, James, James Joyce and, uh, and Einstein, Picasso. And then you've got experimentalists, the sort of uh, uh, Dickens, Shakespeare, uh, more of the current scientific innovators who need to work in teams and understand the world and, and contribute later. So there might still be a subset of people who really ought to just run like hell out, out of the, out of their undergraduate degree to make that contribution before their uh, brains aren't, uh, <laughs> aren't, aren't quick enough to do it, right? Yeah, if you're doing uh, pure maths or physics uh, mm. or potentially philosophy as well, then yeah, you probably want to do your best, you hope to do your best research in your 20s or 30s. Although I think like people's uh, peak research output has been getting older and older uh, because yes. it's getting uh, harder and harder to reach the frontier of knowledge. Uh, um, there's, yeah, there's been a bunch of research on that. And I think our writers and historians tend to do their best research in their 60s, which is interesting. Because if you want to, yeah, last a long time, then, uh, or at least like take a long time to, to reach your peak, then you want to go into like, one of those things where you just need to accumulate a lot of knowledge and experience. Right. And character-driven writers do their best, best work later. Plot-driven writers do their best work earlier. Uh, but, uh, but also, I suppose, there's the question of uh, your willingness to challenge existing norms. And I suppose one of the risks is that you... Uh, in that process of building up career capital, uh, you buy into a set of uh, sort of uh, norms norms around things. So I'm looking at one of your principle, principles for life, principle five, the law, tradition and naturalness in themselves just, justify nothing. Uh, <laughs> so you, know, you seem to be someone who is concerned about the extent to which we might buy into a set of norms around social change, mm. uh, which potentially are stultifying. Yeah, uh, that is definitely um, a risk and something that we worried a lot about, I think, six years ago. Um, so I guess the concern might be, well, you go into a more traditional career in order to, to build experience, uh, and then you get kind of corrupted by uh, all of the people around you who are yeah. you know, like, less yeah. socially concerned. Or narrowed. Um, 
Yeah, more narrow, yeah, less open to, to big ideas and yeah. big changes. Yeah. Um, I think that's definitely something that people should look out for. Um, I've been somewhat surprised by how little that's happened, at least among the people I know who are, who are trying to build up career capital mm. to do something big later on. Um, but there's a big selection bias there that the people I know often are part of a like broader social network. They're, they're like yeah. outside of work. They're talking to people all the time who are interested in effective altruism and, and making big social changes. So I think that is one thing that can make it sustainable is, sure, maybe you're working in just normal, a normal political party where perhaps people don't share all of your ideals, or at least not not, yeah, not all of your ambitions. Uh, but I think if you have like a social group outside of work that um, is interested in the, the other the, like the, the problems that ultimately you want to work on, then hopefully that can that can keep you on the on the straight and narrow. I think uh, another. Uh, thing that we think people should consider during the career is um, so once you've like chosen a bunch of once you've shortlisted problems that you might be interested in working on, um, you want to think maybe systematically about like what approach are you going to take to actually solving it because there's often a wider range than uh, than what people think about. So one would be like you know become an academic or do research, work at a think tank, that kind of thing. Um, another would be to engage in advocacy. So you go into politics, you know, talk on the media, write articles, become a journalist. Um, third is uh, earning to give, which is an idea that people associate with 80,000 hours uh, quite a lot, but is like only one of kind of the, the, the four broad techniques that we think about. That's going out and making a lot of money and then funding other people to, to do these other things. Right. And then I guess so the, the idea you might become a merchant banker rather, rather than a nurse because you can do, do more good for the world by donating that money to allow... Uh, an organization to hire a bunch of nurses in a, in a developing country, right? Exactly, yeah. And in some cases, that absolutely makes sense. That is someone's comparative advantage. If they're you know, much better at making money than they are directly having impact or doing advocacy or doing research, um, I think maybe like one in four people should be doing the, the earning to give role, trying to make money to, to support other people. And then the fourth, we just call direct work, which is kind of everything else, just trying to solve the problem directly, not through like you know, doing research or advocacy or, or making money. You actually just are working away at the problem directly. Um, And basically, I think you want to find um, a, a method for solving the problem that matches the problem or, and also that matches your skills. So obviously, you know, if you're incredibly shy, probably advocacy is not the right path. If you're like, uh, not interested in you know, thinking about uh, sitting down and thinking about new issues, then research isn't going to be the, the, the right approach. And if you have no options to make money, then obviously earning to give it probably isn't your comparative advantage. So you want to think, yeah, both try to, yeah, try to match up um, what is a problem, figure out like, what is actually necessary to solve it, and then find one of those methods that kind of matches the skills that you actually have, things, something you could become uh, really good at. And then if you can get all of those things lined up, then probably you're in a position to have a really big impact in the long term. Do you worry that uh, that approach, Rob, uh, dissuades people from being modest, gentle do-gooders in life? from setting up a corner store that employs three people, gives them worthwhile jobs, uh, brings happiness to those who come in, uh, someone who's then involved in their community, their local sporting, sporting groups, uh, who isn't transformative, but who brings an awful lot of uh, good to their communities and happiness to, the, to those around them. Could, are you in some sense setting the bar at a point where um, you're looking for breakthroughs, but you could be deterring people from just gentle incremental do-gooding? Uh, I guess I, I don't worry about that. I might, might not be surprised to, to hear that. I, I, a lot of the people we're trying to reach are like very privileged people. It's like people who've gone to great universities, you know, very smart. They have a lot of uh, career options in, in, in front of them. And uh, I basically think people in that situation, just given the scale of the, and the severity of the problems in the world, should really should be thinking big. They should be thinking, you know, uh, I don't just want to help one person. I should be trying to help like as many people as I can in, in, in as big a way I can as, uh, as is plausible, at least unless it's like a, a huge sacrifice to them, which uh, typically uh, it isn't if they, if they choose intelligently. Um, so, I mean, I guess 
is your concern that as the person who might open open a corner store and join a join a sports team, uh, they're going to be discouraged from doing that and instead do something evil? Or <laughs> well, uh, what, what, might, what would be the negative consequence? They might embark on uh, starting starting a new organisation which is aimed at uh, uh, ending poverty in Africa. Um, that organisation may crash and burn, uh, have, all, have all kinds of, of problems and they miss, in, in, in taking a moonshot to do something big, they miss the opportunity to do, do something modest and gentle. Uh, and also, you know, whether you feel as though you're devaluing uh, the good we might do through our gentle personal relationships uh, in favour of uh, the, the seismic. Yeah. Okay, so there's a bunch of different points. I think one thing is, uh, I actually heard Peter Singer make this point on, on his interview. Um, it was true, I think, in the past that just being a good person to the people around you, you know, raising a nice family, uh, starting a business, um, like in hundreds of years ago, was among the best ways that you could take to, to improve the world. Uh, but we live in a world now that has like massive inequality where some people have, you know, 100, 1,000, 10,000 times the income of, of some other people uh, in some cases. And also just technology is advancing incredibly rapidly and allowing us to accomplish things that were impossible for, for you know, any other generation. Which means that like this common sense morality that, you know, you should go to church, just be like a decent person to the people around you, uh, you know, don't break the rules, don't steal and don't kill. That's kind of what, what a good life is. Uh, just, I think, isn't true anymore because we just have so much more potential to influence uh, how the future of uh, humanity as a whole goes than, than anyone in, in the past did. So I think people should be more ambitious. They, they should be thinking bigger, at least if they're in a position to kind of deal uh, with any of the, of the, of the big problems that, that we're concerned about. Uh, what does the world look like if we all do this? <laughs> oh... Uh, well, I, I guess if the more and more people started taking this kind of advice, uh, the more and more general it would gradually become. So we obviously don't want everyone, we don't want everyone in the world to kind of stop just contributing to the economy and, you know, producing food and you know, building buildings and producing all of the supporting infrastructure that one needs to, to make a big difference. So we, uh, our advice is kind of on the margin, like amongst our readers, if, you know, some of them, we think thousands of them each year might like take our advice. Uh, if they're going to, yeah, for them on the margin, what can they do that makes the biggest difference? Uh, yeah. But obviously the advice would have to change massively if, you know, half of the world was reading our website and, uh, and taking our advice. We'd have to, like, have a much broader range of problems that people are solving and a, and a much broader, broader range of techniques that would be suitable for, for more people. Yeah. Uh, what aspect of the job do you enjoy most? Um, so I definitely, I really enjoy hosting the podcast, uh, just getting the, the chance to talk to, to really smart people. And um, so our, our interviews potentially go very long. The longest episode is a four-hour interview with someone. Uh, just getting to really explore someone's views in, in great depth and consider counter-arguments and hear back from them and, and then go back, go back and forth again and again. You have think, argued that every podcast episode should be at least two hours, right? Yeah, and, I think... Uh, we, we did have this discussion <laughs> at the outset. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I didn't manage to, to, to persuade Andrew to interview me for, for the full <laughs> two hours, but... Um, yeah, I think it's something that uh, we haven't, until recently at least, there hasn't been a lot of this like really in-depth discussions with people. Uh, the media would have like much shorter interviews and, and abridge everything and there just wasn't room to like really like get someone who's very smart and understand their view, get, get inside their head in, in great detail. Um, and podcasting, the fact that there's like, well, there's now hundreds of thousands of podcasts and like many of them do, do have this like long form interview uh, format. Uh, has kind of filled, yeah, filled this niche, this like I think, which I think many people are really, uh, really wanted. Which is, uh, I want like to really grapple with like big ideas uh, at length, not just over like a twenty-minute, um, you know, brief, like superficial discussion of them. And I think that that's probably the the funnest part of the job. Uh, what are you What are you going to miss about uh, Berkeley when you move back to London? Oh, interesting. I mean, mostly the weather is the obvious thing. I think there's uh, some truth to that. Perhaps also the. Um, uh, 
there's pretty big cultural differences, I think, between America and Britain. Perhaps uh, it's, it's easy to, uh, to understate them because the language is the same. Uh, but I think uh, like the American optimism, uh, I think, might, uh, might, might, might miss that. Oh, just, that. That's also especially the case in, in, in the Bay Area around San Francisco, Berkeley, uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, people just really think that they can, they can change the world um, in, 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 in a big way. That's just part of that. That's in the water there. And I suspect that uh, things are going to be a little bit more pessimistic and a little bit more realistic in London, uh, especially with, with Brexit going on at the moment. And how do you think people in organisations such as the Centre for Effective Altruism and 80,000 Hours should be remunerated? Uh, should these organisations uh, be uh, paying their employees at an appropriate level as to what they'd be, they, they, would, they would receive in the, in the general market? Or should they be uh, paying at uh, the, 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 least, the least they can? What's the ethically right way to manage an organisation which is aimed at doing ethical good. So how should my salary be set? Is that the question you're asking, Andrew? Or how should, how should others, <laughs> other salary be set, if you'd prefer to take <laughs> it one room? Make it in the abstract. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is something that we've debated uh, over the years, and it's actually, I think it's a very hard call, uh, what, what principles should you use to, to set salaries. Uh, and a, a big factor is just going to be how much money is available. What's kind of the ratio of people who are qualified to do this work versus the, the amount of donations that people are trying to, to give to support it? Over time, um, that ratio has changed a lot. So there's a lot more money available now uh, for each person who has experience in the in the area, um, which has caused, which is like basically driven up wages. Because uh, in that kind of situation, you want to increase retention and increase your ability to hire people as as as, as much as possible, so that you don't end up like sitting on a bunch of money that, that, you, that you can't usefully spend. Um, I guess I think in. Given that uh, there is quite a lot of money available to support this, probably we want to go for something uh, like sh short of market wages, but like in that in that direction, and then allow people to donate back uh, if if they choose to support um, the organisation. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so that way, you can kind of get the best of both worlds. People who want to be more altruistic by giving back their salary and not taking much money uh, can you know easily have that option by just you know choosing to give up uh, some of their salary. Um, but people who would only come and work and do this kind of like very specialized uh, work a lot of the time, um, if they can get paid something closer to a market wage, uh, are, are able to do that. And I mean, a lot of people, you know, they have families, they're potentially living in quite an expensive uh, area. Um, it, it, it's probably a, a bit much to expect that everyone who is going to work in this, um, you know, field of research in any capacity or field of work in any uh, capacity should be earning a very, a very low salary. Hmm. Because it's a hard decision that all kinds of charities face, uh, that, uh, that, that call as to how you remunerate and treat your employees. So there are other aspects as to how uh, 80,000 Hours is run that uh, strike you as different from other charities, not-for-profits, that they could potentially learn from? Um, so I think one thing is that we've grown our staffing uh, relatively slowly. We've been around for seven years and now we have nine staff. So we've really focused on hiring, like only hiring when we're very confident that, that we uh, want someone and that they're the right for the, for the organization. Um, and as a result, we haven't yet lost anyone or like everyone who's come to work uh, for, I think, more than six months has stayed uh, mm. to, to, to the present day. That's, I think, not typical for businesses, not typical for nonprofits either. It is closer to the convention. So we went through this startup accelerator called uh, Y Combinator in the Bay Area, um, which normally deals with tech startups, but also started with this nonprofit program. And they think that organizations are kind of perhaps over-enthusiastic to grow by hiring lots of new people, and they, they don't appreciate 
the like huge management overheads that that's going to create and also the, uh, the coordination problems that it has when you have a very large team and people like lose track of what's going on. Uh, and also potentially you hire people who aren't like quite up to the up to the job and then it's like very difficult to get rid of them potentially or it's demoralizing when you start shrinking the team as well. So we've taken this like very methodical approach. We hire only when we're like very enthusiastic about hiring someone. Uh, like everyone kind of gets up to up to speed before we uh, start hiring hiring even more people. We're, we're increasing the, the the rate of growth, but I think that's something that more organizations should, should seriously consider, or that new organizations should plan for, is that you're not just going to be able to hire like lots of great people to take over all these parts of kind of the, the, the job that, that you're not interested or that you, that you don't enjoy, um, and potentially because like a bad hire can be can be such a disaster, it's uh, you're going to want to hire hire quite quite um, deliberately. What else? Oh, um, I guess so. Another thing we uh, we learned from Y Combinator, I guess, is to always have um, metrics that you like talk about at, at, at the meeting each week. Uh, so every week we talk about um, whose careers we think we've we've changed that week, and we have a database of all of the careers that, that we've changed, uh, where we like describe what uh, we think that we're going to do before and what they did as re as a result of us existing. Um, and I think that is just a great kind of lodestar to have there. It's like every week you have to like be honest with yourself about, you know, did we actually accomplish anything uh, this week? And kind of what, what content, like what podcast episodes are actually working to convince people to do something more useful with their career than they, than they would otherwise. Um, without that, it can be uh, very easy to lose direction, um, very easy to just do things that are fun or also things that like get attention. Like to, you might go for media coverage because that feels like you're accomplishing something, even though in reality it's not actually driving mm. uh, the bottom line. I guess that's something that matters more for nonprofits, perhaps even than, than companies, because companies they always have like actual money, uh, like things cash out in terms of try, trying to make trying to make dollars, like close deals, get sales. For nonprofits, often they don't have a clear metric at all, and it's like um, it can take a long time for them to figure out some metric that they can like get on a reasonable time scale that actually tracks at all with what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, but having done that, I think it really helps to yeah, have that discipline every week. And that's presumably coming through people uh, taking initiative to to email you, or, or from the uh, when you're when you're doing the face to face or, or uh, direct direct conversations with people. Right. So we get it through various different mechanisms. Uh, one is yeah, people can just fill out our impact survey on our website, so, uh, where they just describe what they were doing before and how how we influence them. Uh, and we kind of push out that survey once a year uh, to encourage people to let us know if, if we've helped them over the last year. Yeah, uh, th then there's also, um, we follow up with people who we've spoken to one-on-one -on -one, uh, to find out if we've helped. Um, I guess there's also some tools on, on the website. Uh, we have like tools for helping people plan out their career and like make sure that they've considered all of the different things that they ought to consider. Uh, and then sometimes we can look at people's entries on that and see if, see if it's helped. But uh, yeah, we, so we decided on this, this metric uh, about four years ago and then Having having like fig having figured out a metric, then you can kind of build that into all of your systems to like to, be to begin to track it. Initially, it's like it's it's very hard because it seems like it's a huge overhead. Uh, but then over time, I think it, it becomes easier because you build build systems to to track your track what you care about. Uh, do you find having now uh, worked for several years in uh, in the area of altruism that that's made you a more altruistic person? Yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not sure whether it has. I, I guess. One one thing is, uh, I think when I was a teenager, I was in, in my early twenties. I was more stressed out about uh, whether I was ever going to be able to do anything useful. I'm like, oh, there's all these like big problems. You know, uh, we might have a nuclear war. You know, how how, how am I going to work to work to stop that? I, I don't see any avenue to to, to make a contribution here. Uh, and so perhaps uh, like altruism was like on my mind more often because I'm like worried about whether I'm ever like what am I going to do. Um, now having found a role where I think I'm like I'm having quite a bit of impact and I'm like relatively specialized in it such that it uh, seems relatively clear that I should stay in this role or a very similar role 
Uh, perhaps I, I need to worry. I'm less, I'm less anxious. So I have to worry about it and think about it less often. Uh, so I can kind of just get on, get on with what I'm doing and what I enjoy doing. Um, so yeah, I, I think that having a lot of people who are very concerned about ethics and philosophy around me definitely has, has kept me on, 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 on the right track, but I wouldn't say that I think about it maybe more than I did, uh, you know, when I was an undergraduate. Do you give to people, the homeless people on the street? Uh, no, I don't. Why not? Well, uh, so there's some arguments that it's actively harmful, uh, and in some circumstances it, uh, it might well be. Uh, in other cases, I um, just think that it's like it's not the best use of my money. If I was going to give money away, I'd, I'd rather give it to um, yeah, other organizations that we've evaluated that we think are, are going to make a, a huge contribution. Perhaps another thing is it's... Um, if you're open to, to giving to homeless people who ask you for money on the street, uh, then every time someone asks you, you have to consider, like, what am I going to do, which is itself, I think, quite unpleasant. If you just pre-commit to, no, I don't think this is actually morally a good thing to do, uh, either because it's harmful or it's at least not the most efficient use of my money uh, in terms of improving the world, uh, then uh, I can just hopefully, I can avoid, like, making an active decision uh, every time and uh, with the kind of stress and the, yeah, and the, uh, the anxiety that comes with that. Do you engage with those people? Do you try and have a conversation with them? Uh, sometimes, I think. Uh, typically not to be honest. I mean, in San Francisco, the amount of homelessness is uh, very large. It could yes. like, end up eating up a lot of your, a lot of your time. Uh, you get approached uh, you know, more than one time on every block. So unfortunately, the, the heart does get, uh, the heart does get uh, harder in, in that kind of situation. So you're thinking about the trade-offs in terms of the amount of time that that means you can spend in your office doing effective altruism work? Uh, I think it, it would be very interesting. I, I, I um, recently did some research to uh, learn more about homelessness in, in the Bay Area. I was under the misapprehension that um, homelessness in the Bay Area was driven by people moving there um, because it was like a relatively pleasant place to be homeless in the, in the scheme of things. But that actually, uh, based on what I read, isn't true. It's, it, most people have been displaced by uh, rising rents, uh, but like did then um, were reluctant to, to, to leave the area and so instead started living in, in tents in various places. And I, and I then considered uh, talking to people to learn more about uh, their experiences, but uh, this was only a few weeks ago, so I have, have not done that yet. Yes, yes. Um, there, when I was uh, studying at Harvard, there was a uh, homeless guy, Chip, who uh, would... Uh, uh, panhandle on the uh, and the road the route that I took home and uh, uh, getting to chat away with him, I found sort of one of the most eye-opening things as as a as a student who was also studying poverty and inequality. I still remember Chip saying at, at one point, you know. I don't make minimum wage, but I do get to set my own hours. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it was just a lovely, a lovely insight that uh, that that I never would have gotten in the in the classroom. Yeah, um, I guess. Yeah. What, what do, do you think that giving to homeless people is um, potentially harmful? Do, do, do you have any view on the actual consequences of it? Uh, yeah, I agree with you that, uh, that then you're, you're setting up a, a odd incentives and, uh, and so we, we don't want a society in which the only way of getting the resources you need to get through the day is to, is to beg. Um, I, I, don't, I don't, want to, don't want to live in a society, a society that, that encourages begging, um, but there's, if you can identify the moments in which uh, giving somebody some money might or, or, or a, um, something in kind might make a difference, then that's worthwhile. My son and I were at uh, the local shops a couple of weeks ago and getting a pie for him and there was a guy outside who looked hungry and so we got a pie for the guy who was there. And in that instance, it seemed a bit, it seemed a bit different, but, but I'd apply the same general rule that you would. Yeah. 
Um, so going to some of your uh, some of your life principles, um, you have this uh, this this lovely notion that uh, most hard choices in life are a difficult balancing act between pros and cons, risks and reward. So as a result, most general pieces of advice we get in life, for example, we only regret the chances we don't take, can't help. Uh, so should we stop giving out general pieces of advice? Uh, potentially, yeah. I just think it's often not not super helpful. Or not, well, often you find the kind of aphorisms on, on either side of the thing. So it'd be like, uh, uh, look, was it? Uh, sorry. This is um, there's like various you know sayings that encourage risk taking. There's various sayings that encourage caution. Um, and the problem is, it is just typically a judgment call that people have to kind of get through experience or like understanding the world, being able to predict the relative probabilities of different things in order in order to make good good calls there. Um, there probably are some situations that I can't think of off the top of my head where general rules uh, really, really are helpful. Uh, perhaps I was thinking with, 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 with the hiring one, uh, if, if it's not like a really strong yes, then, then it's a no, is probably a generally good rule, given that people, I think, are biased in favor of hiring. Right. Uh, but um, I think with, with many other things like, uh, yeah, risk-taking or, you know, relate, like should you stay in a relationship or should you leave, it's actually often just really hard to know. And, and you just can't give like a, a general piece of advice that's going to apply to all situations. It has to be a lot more subtle than that. It sounds like you're suggesting perhaps we should uh, listen a little more and uh, offer aphorisms a little less. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean... Uh, I guess I would encourage people to engage in kind of uh, act, try to do accurate forecasting, perhaps. So if you think like you know, should I should I stay in in this relationship or should should I should I leave? Maybe like try to think of what is the probability that I'm going to like feel good about this relationship in a year? What's the chances that this like uh, characteristic that this person has, which bothers me, is going to change? Yeah. Um, and you know, what how how much would it cause me to suffer if it doesn't change? Like try to just like think it through, um, like think through the actual consequences of different courses of action um, as much as you can. You've also argued that the long-term future of humanity matters more than anything else, and uh, by which you're talking about the moral value of our actions more than 100 years into the future. Uh, that's, um, that's a hard notion to get your head around, to, to think about having an impact after you're dead. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I, I don't find it uh, hard to think about. It. Maybe it's just become very intuitive to me. But basically, if you... Um Humanity could just continue existing for hundreds, thousands, possibly millions of years, or you know, humanity or, or its successors. Um, and this, so there's going to be so many more people uh, you know, in expectation uh, alive in the future than, than are alive today. And there's things that we do today that, that could, could affect them. To begin with, for example, if you have a child, then in a sense you're causally responsible for all the children that they have, uh, which could be like a, a very large number you know, leading out into the future. Um, uh, and so, yeah, just given, given the stakes of, of uh, you know, the, the future of humanity, the, the potentially trillions of you know beings that, that there might be uh it does seem quite natural to me that like the, the biggest impacts that, that we have the biggest moral impacts we have are going to be on on them rather than the relatively small number of people who who are alive today who we can affect so then to put this in an economic lens you presumably think we should have a zero discount rate in the future or some small discount rate that only takes into account extinction risk yeah something like that uh yeah i think i think that's about right um there's a, there's a whole literature on, on kind of long-termism and what does that imply for discount rates. Uh, discount rates can make sense when you're thinking about uh, like relative prices given that uh, you can save money, earn interest, and then buy things for less in the future. Um, so... Uh, Uh, so yeah, it, it can be quite complicated when you're actually trying to, to, to organize a project to figure out exactly what, what discount rate you ought to use. Another factor is uh, if you're trying to advocate on, uh, 
about an important about, about an important issue, then you can potentially build a lot of momentum by convincing one person today, and then they convince other people in the future. Mm. And so you can get this kind of uh, like the sooner you can start convincing people, then the more uh, the sooner the whole thing grows. It actually is like very hard to analyze. So you have to like build out spreadsheets and think about you know where do things like tail off potentially in hundreds of years time. Um, but basically, no. I think we should when we're considering actions, we should think uh, about. Like we should care as much about the impact that we have on a person in a hundred years' time as 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 today. So there, that, that seems to play into your desire to change the career trajectory of young people uh, to the extent that you can move uh, a significant number of young people onto different paths. Then you're potentially not just affecting them, but also their 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 children and their their spouses. Yeah, that uh, that is a potential benefit. Actually, I uh, hadn't, hadn't really thought about it uh, that 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 much. I think that the main reason we focus on people's careers is that with like relatively small nudges, you can like that only take like hours on on our behalf mm. or, or their part. You can completely change what what area someone works in or what problem they decide to work in. So you get, I think, yeah, we're mostly going for the advocacy uh, leverage there. Um, perhaps rather think about what what impact it will, it will have on their children. But uh, it is yeah, when you think about it. Uh, it is surprising, like what impact like promoting an idea today might potentially have if it takes off and becomes uh, like very, very common uh, and like lasts for hundreds of years. The impact can be much larger than what's initially apparent to you. Yes, and I suppose the thing that in uh, contrast to the uh, notion that you should uh, work in a high, in a well remunerated career and give money back, uh, which might have. Uh, a bigger impact in this it, over the short term, but over the long term may not have the sort of intergenerational benefits that uh, that you seem to be celebrating. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, some people have suggested that. Uh, so we're very concerned about the, the long term. Uh, you, you can earn about four percent return on, on your money on average per year. So perhaps people should start saving lots of money now, put it in foundations, and expect to disperse it in hundreds of years, possibly even thousands of years, if you can keep a uh, foundation for that long. And I, I don't have the, the numbers to hand here, but exponential growth means that the amount of money that you'd be, be able to give away future is vastly larger than, than what you'd be able to, to, to give away today if, if you're willing to be patient and, and wait. There's obviously like other considerations in the other direction in favor of acting now, like it's more important perhaps to promote ideas sooner. Or if, if you're concerned about you know, the risk of human extinction, uh, then obviously you don't want to wait until after that extinction has already happened, then, then the, the money is, is, is destroyed and, and, and squandered. Uh, but uh, yeah, if, if you're thinking about the very long term, then, it, then like a whole lot more uh, possibilities have potentially opened up. Or th th these like things that you probably don't think about when you engage in normal nonprofit work. Like, should we wait like hundreds of years <laughs> with, mm. with with the funding, or like do we desperately need to race uh, right right away in order to have an impact? You know, b before uh, you know there's there's a nuclear war and and, and everything is destroyed. Uh, like, can weigh weigh very heavily on our decisions. Wiblin aphorism 17, negative feelings can only be justified if they create some other greater good, which they rarely do. Uh, do you practice gratitude? Do you do gratitude exercises to try and get rid of those negative feelings? Uh, I don't do gratitude uh, exercises that much. I did keep a gratitude journal uh, for a while uh, and it was kind of pleasant, but uh, I'm not very good at keeping habits like that. Uh, I think I'm not usually a very kind of angry person or I don't hmm. often have a lot of like uh, bad, bad feelings. Um, that I have to kind of control. So perhaps it's like it's easy for me to say things like this. But I guess the the the, the case where I think of that is someone who's uh, say uh, they f they feel really resentful that they've been uh, treated uh, badly, perhaps, uh, and so they keep like ruminating about like something bad that's happened to them, some injustice that, that they think has occurred, even though that rumination isn't solving the problem or isn't isn't helping them mm. at all. Uh, people often, when they're in that situation, feel like it's kind of justified. It's right that they feel angry or that they feel bad or they feel depressed. Um, and it might be that the best way to get over it is to just you know feel that way and acknowledge it and then move on. 
But uh, sometimes I think it can be to, to recognize that what you're doing uh, isn't, like even if it's understandable, isn't actually helping and it isn't actually helping the situation. So you should just, uh, you know, stop feeling angry, like move on and think about something else, read something else. Right. Taylor Swift, haters gotta hate. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, you've written a, a lovely blog post for uh, the 80,000 Hours uh, website, uh, 80,000hours.org, uh, where you talk about uh, overcoming unpleasantness. Uh, and you've got a, a number of sort of quite interesting insights there, which uh, you say are sort of drawn on notions of cognitive behavioural therapy, um, things like uh, working out whether or not the uh, the hurt is going to materially uh, uh, impact over a significant period of time, uh, whether there's some upside you haven't noticed, um, whether it's funny or ironic in some way. Uh, Did the idea of doing this checklist for unfortunate events come from particular unfortunate events in your life? Uh, no, I don't think it did. I think it probably came from reading books. Perhaps also my mum, I think, encouraged me to, to, to think this way. Um, so, yeah, it's basically, I've, I have this, I realised that I have this list in my head of questions that I go down and ask myself when annoying things happen to me. Mm. So, yeah, just to all of us, every day, there's irritations that happen. People who, like, slight you or, like, things that go a bit wrong, people who are running late. The first one there is just, like, is this actually going to harm me? materially like over any period of time almost always the answer is no and if you can just like acknowledge that well this person is late but actually this is going to waste at most you know five minutes of my time so what does it really matter it can really yeah really help to calm you down um uh i, I think yeah partly it's from my parents uh, uh i think also just realizing that i don't want to be unhappy about things and thinking well what questions can i ask myself that will calm myself down and then just like gradually building up this database of like tools that i like Mm. On whenever I'm like trying to get over uh, being irritated with something so I can remain cheerful. Yeah. I like the notion that you should also think uh, not just about the fact that something bad has happened but that something much worse could mm. could have happened. And yeah, so negative you, contrast. You the counterfactual, yes. Yeah, uh, I mean, nothing that I have on there is, is original but, but by any means. But yeah, it's whenever something bad happens, you could, yeah, just imagine like how much worse it could have been. It's like this, this person like damaged my car but, you know, I, all, I could have died potentially if, you know, I'd been like a few metres uh, in, in a different location. So. Yes. Uh, I think I think it really does help. I think it really does make a make a big difference. Help you to um, yeah remain calm in the face of uh, frustrations. And I've also been interested. I'm not sure if this is in your list or, or whether whether it's in something else of yours that I was reading. Uh, but the notion of thinking about uh, how you would advise a friend who is in your situation, mm. uh, in a, in a sense, sort of uh, uh, get, getting out, getting outside your experience and getting a bit of perspective on it. Yeah, that, that's 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 in the list there. Um, I mean. It's, I guess it's a lot easier as a friend to be like, well, you know, is being angry about this, you know, helping you at all? Uh, I, I think also people can actually be like a lot. Uh, another case where that's helpful is when you're beating yourself up about something. Mm. You're like, oh, I like missed this deadline or, you know, I did badly in this test. People can often be like absolutely brutal to themselves about their, their, their failings, incredibly anxious about things that are going to happen in a way that they would uh, never be that cruel uh, to, 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 to one of their friends. With their friends are like, oh, well, you messed this up. Like, well, you know, I bet better luck next time. We'll, like, help, we'll help to like debug whatever went wrong and, and make it better. And there's like no point. Uh, there's no point being like so cruel to yourself because you like didn't start something as, as early as you could have. You know, that be, we're all human. Like these are the things you would say to a friend. But like people can have like very dark ruminations. I think in their own head, uh, feel uh, like very inadequate uh, just from like relatively small mistakes that they make. Have you ever had any of that yourself? You yeah. Seem, uh... Uh, yeah, I think decent uh, amount. I, I often feel like quite guilty, I guess, about uh, like you know not working enough or like you know doing a task like not 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 that well. Um, I started taking antidepressants a couple of years ago, which actually made a big difference. So it's uh, 
uh, I have to like draw on these tools somewhat less, somewhat less than I used to. I got kind of a, a chemical solution to, <laughs> to this problem. But Was that uh, to augment or to remediate? Uh, were you suffering depression at the time? Uh, un, I think kind of somewhat borderline. I think it was like mild depression some of the time. Um, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a super clear-cut case where you, uh, I'd obviously want to start uh, trying antidepressants. But I thought, well, you know, I've been like mildly unhappy, you know, enough of my life for, for long enough that it was worth giving it a crack. And uh, I guess the, the logic was I could try taking these drugs. If they make me happy, I'll keep taking them. If they don't, then I can stop taking them relatively quickly. Yes, it would be like, it'll be a pain to, to try them out, you know, the transition on and off uh, or like whatever, you know, negative effects they have. Um, that would be bad. But if, if they work, then I can continue taking them potentially for 50 or 60 years. The, the, the upside there is so large that right. you know, the value of information of finding out whether it's, um, whether it's benefit uh, is going to be really huge. As it turned out, the second one I tried, I think, just, just made me a lot more cheerful and like prevented me from engaging in this rumination as much as I like, well, it reduced it about 80%. So yes. yeah, I think that was, a, that, was a, that was a big win. It's one of the, one of the better decisions I've made to, to give that a go. Yes, it sounds like your philosophy is the, uh, the the sort of standard economics one that if you think there's a quicker route on your uh, your commute to work, you should always try it because if it turns once. out to be quicker, quicker you can use it every every time. Yeah, so there's this concept people can Google as value of information. Sometimes if you just do the math on like, well, what's the probability that this will be good, and then what would be the benefit to to, mm. to be able to find that out. Um, this usually encourages people to engage in much more experimentation than they than they would otherwise. Mm. Um, there is. On the other hand, you know, information often expires over time or it degrades over time because it becomes less relevant. So it might be that, you know, uh, my situation would change and so, like, maybe I, don't, I wouldn't want to take uh, these antidepressants uh, later on anyway. So it, it probably I'm not in expectation going to use them for 50 years, even if they work well. Uh, but nonetheless, I think, uh, in general, people want to try more things at least once than they're usually inclined to do. Yes. Uh, and in terms of your own career, how do you think about improving what you do? Uh, what are your sort of strategies for uh, becoming better at 80,000 hours next year than you are this year? Mm. So with the podcast, I have an advisory group uh, who I like send out a, a feedback form uh, for, for every episode and then find out, uh, you know, did they find it useful in their own career? Did they think it would be useful for someone else? And did they, did they find the episode entertaining? And then uh, they have like the, a free comment form where often they leave quite brutal feedback potentially about mistakes I've made as a host. I think that that has been uh, quite helpful. So I, I, I read those quite obsessively and, uh, you know, I have a whole uh, panel of metrics of, you know, how many like new subscribers did we get from, from doing this versus that? Uh, how, what was the listing time on, on each different episode? So trying to yeah follow follow the numbers can can, can be useful, I guess. Uh, as as we grow, I'm going to end up doing more and more management, uh, which is something that uh, is kind of uh, a lot of people I think end up like not doing terribly well uh, when when they start managing a team. Uh, so with that, I'm just going to have to I guess collect a lot of feedback from from the people I'm managing on uh, what I'm doing well and 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 what I'm doing badly. Uh, that's uh, I have managed people in the past, but uh, I'm hoping to do a, a, a lot better job at that. Fortunately, I think I'm on uh, good terms with the with the people I'm working with, so I think that they'll be fairly honest about the things I'm messing up. Uh, and do you see yourself staying in this uh, this space for uh, the the rest of your career? I think effective altruism as a whole, yes. Uh, it, I, I like have I guess seven seven years experience now working in that area. It's like. Uh, I started working on it like very soon after kind of the term was coined and there was a lot of momentum uh, behind the set of ideas. Uh, so it kind of probably is my comparative advantage in the scheme of things to, to continue working on it. Uh, but if like some amazing opportunity outside of effective action came up to, to, to have an impact, then uh, I, would, I would definitely be, be open to it. 
But uh, you know, if I were if I were betting, I would I would I would guess that in twenty years' time, I'm going to be doing something broadly broadly in this area. That uh, yeah, this is my comparative advantage, and I should I should find other people through my work to take the other positions that I would that I would otherwise consider taking. How do you think effective altruism is going to change over that uh, the, the coming decades? So I think we had an initial period where there was a lot of growth in interest um, that since kind of we've deliberately um, leveled that off, engaged in like less mass advocacy and spent more time just trying to attract the you know, exact readers and the exact kind of people who can actually act and you know, take the kinds of careers uh, that, we, that we think are most, most impactful. So I suspect that it will be bigger, but not huge. Um, and I think it will involve like a lot more kind of uh, you know, smart professionals in their 30s, 40s, and 50s who are in you know positions of significant influence, trying to you know change policy in, in a positive direction, or do really useful scientific research, uh, or be in businesses that have an, you know an opportunity to, to make a big difference. It'll be like older, a bit more, a bit more, more, bit more mature, um, and I think mostly be around kind of yeah around professionals uh, doing doing this kind of work. I mean, other people have different visions, but I think that's a that's a reasonably likely one. We quoted you at the outset saying that uh, the same person taken at two different points in their life should be considered as two different people. But given that, what advice would you give to your teenage self? <laughs> um, buy Bitcoin, I think, uh, would be uh, pretty good. And, and then sell it, I think, at the end of 2017. Uh, I hope no one else has made that joke on the show. Um, I think, by and large, I kind of stumbled just by following my interests into a into a relatively uh good career and um hopefully hopefully i'm doing something that's useful so i'm not sure that i'd want to want to fiddle a ton uh with with the things that happen uh i guess uh one is uh probably start using a proper desk setup and uh, you know get a get an ergonomic chair and like a nice desk and have a monitor <laughs> up right i think there's something that people underestimate when when they're younger is like how much they're going to end up with like shoulder and neck issues uh, in, in in their work it's kind of a small thing potentially but like it yes. really adds up i think to um having having a good quality of life oh another one might be uh I, th I think I really should have started listening to audiobooks sooner. Um, I kind of struggle to, to concentrate when I'm just reading a, a book on paper, mm. but I can like blast through an audiobook uh, re relatively quickly. Um, but I only found that out um, in, in, in the last few years. But I could have you know, read a hundred more uh, like really informative books if I'd started doing that uh, as, a, as an undergraduate. I, and I should have just like found the money to, to, to buy these Audible books. Like if you're, if you're spending, well, the book might cost $20 uh, to get an audible. I'm going to spend like five or 10 hours listening to it. You know, the hourly cost is so small. The, the, the financial cost is really a small fraction of the total time that's going into it. Or the total you know, cost of uh, reading, reading the book. Uh, and, but it would totally be worth it. I think like, yeah, having, having read hundreds of books just like puts you in a much better position to, to, to make good decisions. Indeed, and there's always public libraries. Uh, what's something you used to believe, but no longer do? I guess so. Well, we haven't talked very much about um, artificial intelligence uh, here, but I think, uh, you know, uh, the invention of artificial intelligence or like a general artificial intelligence at, at a human level and you know how it's applied uh, and, and by who and, and to what ends uh, could end up being like a very significant driver of uh, the, the future of human civilization. Um, I guess I used to think that our odds of pulling off a safe transition to artificial intelligence making a lot of decisions in society, uh, kind of some, uh, yeah, delegation of decision making from humans to um, AI, uh, our chances of doing that well was low um, because there's just so many ways it could go wrong. Um, I think... Uh, over the last few years, there's been just like more really smart people who've thought about from an engineering point of view, mm. uh, how do we align artificial intelligence with human interests? Like what are the ways that that can fail to happen uh, and things can go off, off the rails? And how do we just build in safeguards so that doesn't happen? Um, has gone up a lot. There's been a lot of papers written about that. And I'm now just optimistic perhaps that we'll put in the, we'll, we'll have the forethought, we'll do the work ahead of time. 
uh, before uh, you know AI becomes like much smarter than it is today, um, and will actually manage that transition in a in a in a safe and peaceful way. Um, I, I'm still still concerned about how it could go badly, but uh, I'm like I'm hopeful that that it will go well. When are you most happy? Uh, I think one of the things I just most enjoy is. Uh, uh, you know, talking in a group of friends, maybe four or five, and like riffing jokes like back and forth. It's a very Australian thing. I think the Brits do it as well. Americans do it a bit less. Um, but there's something that's just so entertaining about, uh, you know, one, you know, someone says something and someone like bounces off of that and then it keeps going back and forth and gets funnier and funnier. Um, it's kind of a magic that's a little bit hard to capture. I guess often sometimes, you know, alcohol is involved, uh, can, 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 can help with that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, get, get that about once a week, but it's just like excellent. So uh, you'll be looking forward to moving back to London for, uh, for, for boosting this aspect of your happiness then. <laughs> yeah, I've been, uh, yeah, I've been missing my colleagues and missing my friends uh, a little bit in Australia. Yeah, most of the people I know now are in America and, and, and the UK. So um, it, will be, it will be good to be back in the office. We have a lot of banter in the office, so, which I think, is, I think is excellent. Yes, it's, I remember being struck in the States the extent to which the, uh, the, the folks from Commonwealth countries would, uh, would hang out together uh, and that sense that uh, the Americans would beat us for earnestness and drive and innovation and entrepreneurship, but uh, we, would, we would beat them for rapid fire humour. <laughs> Making fun of people. Jokes. Exactly, yes. yes. <laughs> Equally important skills as, you know, driving the economy or <laughs> inventing new valuable techniques. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Um, what's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Yeah, I guess so, so we discussed uh, trying out antidepressants. I suppose uh, I do do intense exercise um, a few times a week. Um, and I think as long as you keep that up, uh, then you can like potentially find it very enjoyable to, to, to do intense cardio, uh, do, do, do weightlifting. It's like always hard to start up if, if you stop. But uh, I think in terms of like, yeah, making me feel uh, happy and like good about myself, uh, yeah, just... It's, it's very hard to beat, uh, you know, intense exercise or, or walking every day at the least, yeah. Specifically, what do you do? Oh, uh, so unfortunately I have, I have a knee injury. <laughs> so it's like another thing I would tell my younger self is to be more careful about uh, injuries. Uh, at, Look after at your the knees, gym you only have two, and you probably need them both. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I started doing uh, kind of intense like spin cycling uh, classes um, and also just, just some standard weightlifting kind of squats and things like that. Mm. How uh, are you working to a sort of uh, goal in terms of what you can do? Well, just don't get fatter as I get older, I suppose. <laughs> like, try to roughly maintain my like. Right, yeah, right. So it's your weight rather fitness. than the weight on the bar that you're right. most <laughs> yeah, Exactly, yeah. yeah. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Uh, I'm not a huge one for guilt in general. Um, I guess I spend much too long reading Twitter. Uh, and perhaps I enjoy kind of satire or mockery of people I disagree with, even perhaps when it's like not entirely fair. And I know it's not entirely fair. It's like, you know, us. Um, strawmanning strawmanning their position but it can still be uh, very funny to read and there's a lot of that on twitter far, far too much of it really but yeah it is it is enjoyable you don't worry that you'll be on your deathbed and thinking was it really a good use of my life to spend a year on twitter uh well i do, i guess i'm not a big one for I worry that like the, the perspective that you have when you're in a deathbed is just one of many perspectives and it's, it's not it shouldn't necessarily be privileged. So when you're on your deathbed, you're going to be thinking like very philosophically, you're in far mode, uh, like this is kind of construal level theory of psychology. So you're going to be thinking at this very abstract level potentially, thinking about the big picture of your life. Um, also, you're surrounded by your family, so what are you going to say? I should have spent more time in the office, probably not. Uh, but I prefer to think that like every every minute of your life is kind of an equally important perspective potentially, because uh, it could take a kind of hedonist or a philosophically hedonist perspective, um, and it could just be that even though kind of looking back on it, reading Twitter 
doesn't feel like you've accomplished that much. Um, it, it was worth it because it was just enjoyable minute to minute. Uh, I'm not, I don't know that that actually does go through because Twitter probably, it also like can make you feel very anxious and, and frustrated uh, reading, say, the stupid opinions of someone who've sought out because they, they were the person who said an unusually stupid thing on Twitter that day. Uh, but yeah, it, it could just be that reading like cheap, um, cheap comedy actually is like the best way to spend your life, at least from a selfish point of view. And finally, Rob, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Um, so uh, I guess the, the, the natural answer is probably uh, Peter Singer, because uh, yeah, I think it was like him who got me interested in utilitarianism and then um, effective altruism longer term. Uh, perhaps uh, like a, a less obvious one might be Jeremy Bentham. I think I've read very little of uh, Bentham's original writing, but uh, he's just like trenchant kind of classical utilitarianism focusing on, on, on well-being. He was like a super pioneer of that. And he got so many things right so early on. So he was in the 18th century. He was like in favor of kind of gay marriage and gay rights, like sexual liberation, um, animal welfare, uh, you know, uh, liberation of women, universal suffrage, universal education, um, concerned about the welfare of foreigners, which at the time were like, was typically disregarded. He was like not only ahead of kind of the 18th century, he was like ahead of our time in many ways. Like a lot of the things that he um, says are kind of cutting edge potentially today or we only got to in the last few decades. Well, I guess on animal welfare, you know, we haven't, it's not clear that we're actually doing any better than we were in the 18th century. Um, so I think, yeah, him leading the way and then that, I guess going into John Stuart Mill and this, and this broader philosophical tradition uh, in, in England uh, probably, yeah, has ended up having a, a huge influence on, on what, I, what I think in practice. Rob Woodland, uh, activist, altruist, thank you so much for taking the time to share your insights in the Good Life podcast today. It's been really fun. Uh, I guess if you enjoyed this, uh, subscribe to, to the show, the 80,000 Hours podcast with, uh, with Rob Woodland. You can get a lot more of this uh, if, if you're interested. Available on uh, <laughs> iTunes and uh, wherever all good podcasts are found, right? Yeah. Thanks so much for the plug. <laughs> thank you. Just a reminder for those still listening that the EAGX Australia conference will be on the 28th and 29th of September uh, over at the University of Sydney. Uh, you can find out more about that at eagxaustralia.com and potentially at Grab a Ticket. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a couple of weeks.